This week's episode is sponsored by RLJE Films. Our legends Barbara Crampton, Larry Fessenden, and The Conjuring's Bonnie Aaron star in Travis Stevens' delightfully gory new film, Jacob's Wife, now playing in select theaters on demand and digital HD. After an encounter with the master, Anne discovers bite marks on her neck, a new sense of power, and an appetite to live a bolder life. Bolder than ever, but as the body count grows, Anne must decide between her enticing new existence and her life before the bite. Sink your teeth in and watch Jacob's Wife on Apple TV today. Also from RLJE Films, the Shudder original documentary Leap of Faith is now available to own on Blu-ray. Witness the complete dissection and sweeping examination of award-winning genre classic The Exorcist. Explore the uncharted depths of William Friedkin's mind's eye, the nuances of his filmmaking process, and the mysteries of faith and fate that helped shape his life and filmography, as told by the man himself. Head to Amazon.com and own Leap of Faith on Blu-ray today. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by Severn Films, the worldwide premiere of the unrated director's cut of Gabe Bartolis's Skinned Deep. The insane directorial debut of the Frankenhooker and Basket Case 2 FX artist, which Film Threat calls Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets Brain Damage. Scanned in 2K from the negative and featuring never-before-seen gore and with a host of exclusive special features. Also, the Blu-ray premiere of the director's cut of the grim 70s Richard Speck story, Born for Hell. Scanned from the recently unearthed 35mm protection print. Packed with special features including testimonies on spec from filmmakers Gary Sherman, John McNaughton, artist Joe Coleman, and Once Upon a Crime podcaster Esther Ludlow. Also includes alternate U.S. release version Naked Massacre, plus the worldwide Blu-ray premiere of the 80s Canuxploitation Shocker, Siege, scanned in 2K from the original negative of both the theatrical and extended cuts. I've seen it. I love that movie. Also available for pre-order, Bruno Matai's Exploding Hut Rambo Ripoff Strike Commando 1 and 2 and Invaders of the Lost Goal. So much treasure. Visit www.severin films.com. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page head to fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe and while you're there make sure to enter promo code colors that's c-o-l-o-r-s to save 25 percent off your yearly subscription Colors of the Dark. I'm your host, Elric Kane, and joining me as always is Dr. Rebecca McKendry. Sup? I think I had a stroke during that opening, but that's I cool. heard that. I, I think I had a stroke during the ad reads. I'm so <laughs> exhausted today. Yeah, no, I, I can't. I can't tell if, if it's exhaustion or uh, boredom anymore. Like the two have merged in my existence, where I can never tell. Um, it's all just blurring at this point, but. That doesn't mean we don't have exciting horror things to talk about, fun upcoming things, cool events we just did. Definitely. And a kick-ass interview in this episode. Well, so and plus, we had lunch in person last week. 
at the year, same restaurant. Mean, right? It was last year. Last year. No, it was pretty, no. It was like last year and it was last week. Last Friday, Elric bought me a chicken burger and we yeah. sat and we had lunch together for the first time in over a year. Even maskless and at points. Yes, maskless. I, I, we had fries and it was wild. So um, here's to vaccinations. Yes, that took a while. It did take a while to get to that, but that was nice. It was a nice, definitely the most uh, kind of alive I felt in some time where you're just like, oh, yes. that's like almost what normal life is. It's like. kind of, and today, like um, the kids in uh, Los Angeles started back this week. Mm. Um, and so like I walked my daughter to school this morning, which that's felt cool, yeah. almost normal it was still weird um but uh, we're getting there and yeah. so it's just yeah baby steps we're Gotta getting be, there we want to be smart so we can get back to normal but i'm debating whether or not to turn my amc stubs pass back on i'm waiting for something really good to come like i debated going to see nobody and i was thinking about seeing king um kong versus oh, godzilla right, right, yeah. in the theater just because you know to see that with pass. hbo max like when you have hbo yeah. max it's hard to then go exactly. oh i should go see that thing that's playing on my tv right now well, I mean, with Stubbs, you get like two a week for – like I never okay. even used all my freebies with that. And um, so I debated like, okay, well, that'd be a fun one to go see in the theater. But I ended up holding and I'm waiting for something just absolutely amazing. I know Quiet Place 2 is coming up. That'd be cool. And maybe I'll turn my Stubbs back on for that. I think I'll go to Nobody in the theater in, in the next couple of days. This, this technically is my birthday episode because – that I my know, birthday will, will be before we can do another episode. So I'm thinking of, I probably shouldn't even report this on air, but I am thinking of taking the day off work just so I can go try to do some normal stuff. Like I want to go to the new Amoeba. I want to go to a movie theater. I just want to walk Amoeba's around. nice. Yeah, I want to just go, yeah. you know, I want to I walk past um, Cinerama, probably put a bid down, maybe. <laughs> uh, I could take that. What, what are you going to turn it into? What do you think we've been stockpiling our Patreon for? Guys, <laughs> we didn't want to tell you this, but we have officially a few hundred dollars towards <laughs> and bringing it back. for Anyway. Uh, we do, may be able dream. to buy a couple of their candy bars, yes, yes, so right. we're good. And I think we could buy jobs there. That's about what we could hope for. <laughs> but, you know, it is, it, that it, I don't believe, anyone listening, I don't believe for a second we have seen the end of that theater. I don't believe. Now, no. that said, the one thing I don't have as much perspective on as some people I respect, you know, the, the Drew McQueenies and people like that. They've been here like twice as long, a lot of people, and a lot of them do say they've seen some really amazing icons every few years do fall in LA and never come back. And it's a really upsetting, like it just happened, like the Brown Derby, and you just have these places like place by place that's suddenly gone. And you, because it's getting very modernized LA for those who aren't here, uh, we won't waste too much more time. But Cinerama is one of the most beautiful, uh, you know, just, 1950s, just yeah. vintage, classic looking, um, like giant theater yeah with the big big golf ball kind of thing so it's very just iconic and it's also right in the heart now that said right across from it was amoeba so when i would go there i would go to amoeba now now amoeba's left that spot so um and yeah and they're closing the arc light behind it which i had always like the arc light was the classy theater it's it's like the best project yeah it's the best projection in the city it's the best well it was also the one where they like come down the aisles and tell you to get your damn feet off shit um i mean you go to the amc and you can basically stretch out in your pajamas and like you know do what you want but um yeah the arc light was always the classy one yeah so i don't know i'll be very interested to see it's obviously terrible timing with theaters just reopening so of course we want to we want to see theatrical boom right now for all industries it's a good thing for everyone so we'll, we'll keep our eye on it but um 
I do not believe we've seen the last movie. If you haven't seen the theater, uh, check out Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There's in a Hollywood. nice tribute to that theater there. So Tell um, Jules we need the new Bev opened. I know. Well, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I was wondering maybe the reason why some smaller theaters don't open is because, like, let's say you get to 50% capacity in California, which is where we're at. They probably can't survive on 50% because they have to pay for the movies, unlike movie theaters like you know arc like get they're they're sharing profits obviously with studios to play movies but any mm-hmm. small retro theater probably has to pay for the prints and the licensing so i was wondering if maybe some of these places can't open until you're closer to full capacity which god knows how. i know i and this may not be the case for movie theaters but i know at least with like the dance studios and the gymnast studios and the yeah. schools even that there's a certain type of requirement with their air filtration system. Yeah. Um, I know that like literally the last year, Marnie, like the, her ballet studio had to outfit their air filtration system just so they could open at 50% capacity. Some theaters here so. have during the break. I think it might've been the air. I definitely have heard people say they're uh, the new art, I think spent a huge amount on some fancy system. So anyway, I know we're off topic. That's just yeah. happening in the background. Movie theaters, you know, we're, we're going to see a lot more about what happens with where movies play, I think, in this next year. So that's, that's a very Patreon deep cutty discussion we just did on the regular show, the regular show because I deleted last week's Patreon episode. Oh, yeah. So that we'll it's get to true. that. So, so <laughs> it's the first time in the history of podcasting together and on any of my podcasts, I think. Yeah, that we lost so an episode. Almost, yeah, it's like eight years and we recorded it for about an hour and it was really good. And, and Becca talked about gowns in old haunted castles. I, I wear nothing but gauzy Victorian yeah. gowns now. So I constantly look like I'm running from a castle. I'm not wearing a t-shirt That's what and jean shorts right now. Yeah. Yeah. And and then at, at the end of it, it was gone. So we are, I, I'm pulling in a couple of the picks that were featured in the episode into this, just because I couldn't bear the idea of just re-recording that. Um, and that's why for our Patreon, for those who are listening, we we actually dropped the episode we've been excited to share on the Puberty Horrors, which is more like a full kind of lecture type uh, yeah. episode. So there's still good stuff in there if you want to go. Um, but here we... A little later in the show, we, we talked about Jacob's wife up top in the ad today. Uh, we also got lucky to uh, do Panic Fest uh, this week, which is also the last time we hung out uh, really in person yep. somewhere. It was at Panic Fest a year ago. Um, and we talked to uh, legends Barbara Crampton and Travis Stevens a little later in the mm-hmm. show. So we already have that part of the show. So we're kind of just uh, jamming through some stuff we've seen and, you know, que- queuing up some good stuff. Yeah. So um, thank you to Panic Fest for having us, by the way. That was a blast. And again, the last time that we like hung out in person prior to lunch last Friday. Um, but we are proud to announce that we we figured out our USC screening for this month. And thank you all. So many of you all have joined us for those. And it's been a blast. Um, we will be showing After Midnight, the amazing Jeremy Gardner film. But here's the fun part. Jeremy Christian producer Dave Lawson and actress and director Bria Grant will be joining us for a lesson on kind of DIY indie horror filmmaking. Like how do you get something small up off the ground? And so um, that will be happening the last day of the month. I think it is like last Friday or whatever that is. Yeah, we'll we'll post it. And so the first part will still just be us introing it, but afterwards stick around because we, we want to kind of pick their brain and do something different, make it a little bit of a indie masterclass, which will be fun. Yeah. And it's a really cool Um, movie too. So. Yeah, it is a really cool movie. So I am going to jump in tonight with um, my tragic tale from oh, no. um, last week, which was Anaconda's Hunt for the Blood Orchid. 
But it's doubly Actually, tragic because I've had to hear it all before. <laughs> I know, right? But you're going to hear about a it again. Because Anaconda's hunt for the blood orchid. Okay, so I'm walking through the Goodwill and I'm like, hey, Anaconda's hunt for the blood orchid DVD and it's only $2 and it was taped shut. And I bought it and I was so excited because I've always thought that this one is the best of the entire Anaconda series. And um, so I got it home. And I do have to say that I'm always really hesitant to watch sequels to any of the good animal attack movies because usually I kind of perceive it as oh I like this movie now here's a sequel that's going to kill all my memories Mm. um and I'm going to talk about that some more in a second with another one that I watched (laughs) this week but that's how I feel about most of the Lake Placid inclusions and um but Anaconda Hunt for the Blood Orchid I've always thought kind of held its own I got home with my newly purchased $2 disc and there was no fucking disc inside. It had literally been taped shut with nothing inside. In fairness, um, $2 just, gets you a cover, just so you know. Thanks. Yeah, you, I bought I bought the cover. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. But so I was so enraged that I decided to rent it off Amazon, which was still like another $2. So $4 in on Anaconda Hunt for the Blood Orchid. Um, and I rewatched. And I have to say, I still think this one is great, if not better than the first one. And I say this, um, it does not have big name talent. There is no John Voight chewing the scenery or anything like that. Um, but it it has more plot than the first one, I feel. It very much is kind of a medicine man style plot, like Sean Connery's medicine man, Snakes, where it is about um, this group of scientists who discover this, this particular orchid. It's bright red. They call it the blood orchid. And it grows deep in the heart of Borneo in Indonesia, in deep in the jungle. And it only blooms once every seven years. But what they have discovered is that this flower literally kind of stops cells from aging. And so they consider it to be like a fountain of youth flower. And because of that, each one of these blooms is worth millions of millions of dollars. And so this team of scientists have been sent into the jungle when these flowers happen to be blooming to try to recover as many as they can so that they can use them for medical testing. And so a whole bunch of people, they hire a doctor to come along with them in case any of them, you know, get into trouble. Um, it's the middle of the rainy season on the river. And so they can't get people to take them. So they have to hire the rogue boat captain who's like, I'm the only one who's going to take you up river and it's going to cost you like $30,000, which they pay because they're staring at millions of dollars worth of flowers. And they get there. And what they discover is that um, not only do these flowers stop the cell death in humans, but they do the same thing in snakes. Hmm. And so all of the snakes around these flowers have grown to insane proportions just because they don't die. Hmm. And um, and then we get a bunch of snakes. The CG effects in this are very 2004. Don't go in, you know, expecting um, Mandalorian. But that said, it's a really fun set up and there I felt I always feel like this one does more with the snakes than they did in the first one possibly because there's so many of them um and I feel like they there's some really good gags with the snake in this but yeah so heavily CG'd but hunt for the blood orchid if you dig your like giant animal attack movies don't overlook this one it's it's just as fun as the first one but you're saying no Boba Fett so don't get my heart so I'm not going in um no, okay, good. no, the child is not in this. Okay. Um, so yeah, 
I don't think I ever watched any of the sequels to those as much as I loved uh, doing a John Voight impression on the show that is now lost forever. No one's ever going to get my John Voight again, just so you guys know. Come on, give us the John uh, Voight. I, I just can't do it. So I might end the episode with it and you just won't see it coming. So uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, no, that one, I, I'm, you got me curious about the fountain of youth angle. I'm kind of uh, into that. It's pretty smart. I liked it. Um, the one, one of the ones that I, I, uh, saw was, uh, from Billy Ray, uh, Billy Ray Bruden has a show called, uh, Movies with a Side of Gravy. And I did a episode with him a couple weeks back on, uh, I think we made like a list of 10 or 20 films together from the post 2000s of horror. And one that was on his list that I, I remember the cover thinking it looked terrible and didn't watch it, uh, was 2005's Venom, uh, by Jim Gillespie, who is the director of I Know What You Did Last Summer. And it had Agnes Bruckner and Bijou Phillips and DJ Katrona and it's like just something about the cover looks like maybe it was a wrestling movie or something because of the guy it's a guy's uh tattooed kind of uh torso or something and what it's actually a really neat slasher and i thought it was really well made i, I it might have been even more fun than i know what you did last summer but it's set in louisiana so you get the kind of uh southern gothic uh style um slasher film it is about uh this older uh i guess voodoo practitioner woman has uh, put all these little snakes inside a suitcase and she's trying to get rid of it. And you don't really know what it is, but you can tell there's some sort of uh, spell on the suitcase. And her life comes into the same orbit with these like teens who are having a fight on a bridge. And this big trucker guy who's like kind of everyone's kind of go, he's that white trash trucker guy. And he looks a little edgy and, you know, kind of surly. Anyway, there's a bit of an accident. He ends up going over the cliff with the suitcase. The suitcase opens and all these little snakes come in bite him and later we find out that each one of those snakes was um the, the grandmother had been milking the darkness out of really bad people and um had been doing it for years and so now all this darkness went into this one guy so basically it becomes this like super slasher where he starts tracking all these people and it's got a weird eeriness like no one's in this movie like no one's in this town it's like you only ever see these kids in a couple locations so maybe it was a budget you know, choice, but either way, it created a bit of an eeriness. Uh, and for a teen thing, I mean, I thought the slash is great. He's very Terminator esque, keeps coming at you. Um, I know I, I was I was entertained by this one for somebody you know slasher completionist. I think this was the last Miramax Dimension movie before that was sold, so it's probably part of the reason it got lost in the kind of shuffle. It sounds like Skeleton Key is a slasher, which really kind of turns me on. Well, yeah, and it would be a good double, like if they teamed up, because I think this guy's called Mr. Jangles. So Papa Justified and Mr. Jangles sounds like a movie. Oh, uh, I, I do love my Southern questionably incorrect voodoo movies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I do not know enough to know if they're doing it. They would probably tell us as voodoo, but... uh, because I think voodoo is the good voodoo, uh, at least from last time I was in New Orleans. We'll see. I um, don't think so there's something who does a version of like a more positive energy i is it yeah i think so when i was this, well, okay I would be speaking so far out of school but i always thought that hoodoo was just like a hillside version like a a, yeah, hill, a a kind of more rural version of voodoo well you know the good thing about being podcasters who make lots of mistakes listener the angry listener so so listener um you you may tweet at us and tell us the difference between voodoo and hoodoo and probably how absolutely incorrect um portrayals of both of those are in venom and um the uh the other uh, one oh but, yes um, uh skeleton key skeleton key uh, yes. but yes make sure you make out all those complaints to ernie hurtado uh, <laughs> our, our sound engineer likes to filter all issues that you have and he will report quietly back to us thank you very much. 
uh, we'll be good. But anyway, Venom was fun. So so point to probably one of the only times I'll give a point to Billy Ray. Um, if he's listening, that's the sole point you get, Billy Ray. I'll see you on the screen drafts dance floor. Okay, well, I'm going to keep, before I get into the Hellraiser and yeah, the Yeah, hold that, because we'll do, we'll do I, our Panic Fest at once. Oh, man, I, I opened some some boxes this week, literally. Hmm. So I did um, all the Hellraiser movies and the entire Q documentary. But before hmm. I get there, I'm going to take it a little light and breezy with some killer okay. crocodiles for a bit. Okay, good. So you know what a huge fan I am of um, Andrew Truckies. Truckies, I'm Trukey, probably saying yeah, his movie Blackwater, mm-hmm. um, which came out. That was actually one of the first movies I ever reviewed in Fangoria. I believe that one was the magazine. Um, but it was one of, I remember that was like my, oh my goodness, I get to review something now. Like I'd written articles, but I was like, somebody cares about my opinion. Um, and so, yeah, I always, but I loved that movie and it was awesome. But, um, they recently just released a sequel to it, which is like eight years, possibly 10 years later. It's been a while. Um, so I watched Blackwater Abyss this weekend. So again, I was scared that this was another like, I love that first movie. I can't wait to watch the sequel, which will ruin all of the memories. And this did not do it to quite the degree that I've seen with other films, but it definitely did not live up to the suspense that is built up in the first one. Um, The setup of this is shockingly like 47 meters down too, Hmm. where it is um, a group of teens, or I'll call them young adults, I guess. Um, yeah, they're young adults because one is like their dating age. Um, they find an underground cave system that is completely off the map. There's a long driving sequence as they play music and drive to the underground cave system that's completely off the map. And then they decide to go spelunking. While the, Once they are deep in the cave system, They hear thunder, then they hear rain start pouring down on the ground above them, and then the cave starts flooding. So ripped from the headlines of what happened with that group of um, young explorers um, internationally a couple of years ago where they were spelunking and then they were trapped in the cave system after- The kids, they were like little kids, right? Yeah, they were like little kids with one adult, I believe. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, So it's basically ripped from the headlines of that. So they once they get inside the cave system, they find this like lake, this like underground lake and they're swimming in it and plashing around. And then all of a sudden this torrent of water starts pouring in and the room that they are in this underground lake starts filling. And they realize that eventually the room is going to fill. The way that they came in is now very underwater. And with the flood of water that came in, came in a crocodile. And so now they are trapped on this like tiny little outcropping of rocks against a wall in a cave with a crocodile picking them off if they try to get out. And then, of course, there's problems. The crocodile actually attacks one of them. So he has very bad wounds. Um, what does he look S- like in this film? Is he a CG thing or is he a real croc or what, what did. Okay. So that's person? where it's CG, but, and I do not mind my CG crocs. I don't mind my CG snakes. I am willing to forgive CG. Mm-hmm. This is where my issue stuck. So I actually liked the setup of this. I was like, Oh, we are stuck in a cave with a giant croc. Mm-hmm. Well, color me curious. This mm-hmm. is fun. Where the movie lost me, the croc, changes back and forth from a croc to an alligator repeatedly. Hmm. And let me tell you, I do not know my crocs from my alligator, except for the fact 
that alligators' eyeballs are up on top of their head and crocs are further down on their face. It changes back and forth constantly. The crocodile changes size, by which I mean like 10 feet. Like you will see him in some scenes and he's like the same size as the other people. And then in the next scene, he's like the size of the entire cave. He even changes color. It's possible that sometimes he's hoodoo and sometimes he's voodoo. It's possible (laughs) that you were going to also get tweets about the crocodile alligator thing now, but that's okay. No, no. And it bothered me so bad that I ended up Googling that because I was like, his eyeballs are moving around. Literally, they would go from the top of his head when he's floating to like the sides of his heads during the attacks. Hmm. The CG felt so just it pulled me out because when I say like the alligator changed colors, he literally goes from gray to green to black to to kind of bluish shades throughout the entire movie. It was kind of painful. And that is weird because every, that filmmaker kind of makes realistic looking movies. And so he you made want the wreath, yeah. which is great. Yeah, which is super real feeling. Yeah. And so this one, and I have to say the other thing that pulled me out, um, and this is again, he makes realistic movies. So this seemed like a crazy, crazy fucking oversight. They have spent the entire movie fighting this torrent of water because all these torrential storms are happening outside in the middle of the Australian outback. And it doesn't rain that much. Now all this water's rushing in because it has nowhere else to go. And they've been fighting this water and it's not receding and it's just rising, rising, rising. She literally crawls her way out of the cave eventually. It is the middle of the desert on a very hot day, bright and sunny, and there has not been a single speck of rain. Hmm. And they didn't even mention it. It was just like, whoo, glad I'm out of there. Now I'm away from the alligator. And it was just, wait, you just had this whole movie set up about this like hurricane-like weather that's been happening the entire time. And so that one really did strike me as as a big oversight. That's a um, something to the point where I was watching it. I was like, what just happened? Hmm. Um, so yeah, but that's that. I mean, like the actual stuff in the cave with the alligator, if you ever look at the fact that the alligator crocodile drastically changes shape and size, the setup of it is fun. I just really wanted more effort on that CG. And I have to say, I am not usually the type of like continuity purist who gets really hung up on that but this one kind of bothered me. Also the cave had beautiful lighting um, by which like the lake had, had foot lighting throughout the entire lake around the bottom of it. And mm. I know you have to light it somehow, but it, it drew a little bit too much attention to it. But yeah, you're being so snobby thing, of underwater photography lately. What was the other one we talked about before breaking the surface? That was a beautiful shot. I thought that, Oh, that one. I had no gripes yeah. about the underwater photography for that. Yeah, it was yeah. great. I just wanted the killer whales to be fucking killer whales instead of just instead of Hello. killing dog. Instead of killing Now dog. we kill a dog. Yeah. So, uh, well, I, I got you. Um, I got you with a good I will animal. Say, I will say, I, I don't want to be too negative on Blackwater, the abyss, because if you do like your alligator movies, forgive the changing shape and just go in. It's still kind of fun. But go watch Darkwater instead. What is it? Go watch, yeah, that's go one, watch right? Black. Yeah, no, Blackwater. Jo- John yeah. Jarrett, the Australian one we like. That. Blackwater. Yeah. Oh, oh, Dark Age. Dark Age. Yeah. Go watch. Go Dark watch Age. Dark Age. Go watch the original Blackwater. They're both amazing. Yeah. Um. Like the other one that I saw, a friend of the show, Shane Bitterling, had tweeted a couple weeks back that he saw the best um, Bigfoot version of a kind of Yeti Bigfoot kind of story he had seen. And I was like, okay. 
And, uh, he, you know, he warned me maybe some of the acting might be patchy, but, you know, check it out. So this is a newish film, actually, 2018. So probably might have just been released now uh, called Primal Rage, The Legend of Conga. I don't think that's the real subtitle, but it's it's on the current release. I think it's just there to make it sound different than other movies called Primal Rage. Uh, and this is by a practical effects guy, Patrick McGee, directing this, who had done. Uh, if you look him up, he has a lot of credits doing effects. And look, honestly, this is one of the most entertaining monsters i've seen on screen in a very long time i preferred this to the new kong movie to be perfect it it's basically you know the 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 human side of it i'd say is below average um a a young a young mom who's probably only 20 looks she looks like 20 is picking up her also young uh boyfriend slash husband who's been in jail for about six months for something menial is he bigfoot he's not bigfoot so there's still i know i know that's where you thought i was going um they they pick it up they have a quickie in the car and as bigfoot not yet you just okay, have to hold. Okay. You can keep asking. Okay. There's a lot of other characters coming. Um, <laughs> it, it isn't usual suspects, but that's okay. Um, uh, they they basically kind of. So she's Kaiser Sose. Well, no, is no, what she's you're not. Is what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Well, this okay. feels like doing a show with myself. Uh, um anyway what's well, because you've actually heard me do this before on the episode that is no more um on the one that got burned okay so anyway they uh get pulled over the side they're at this like pacific northwest uh they run into some he- guy dudes who are all gonna go hunting and there's like 20 of them and they're all pretty gross and there's elements of the story where it's obviously going down that very typical whoosh you're lo- you're a pretty girl in the forest and we all have guns and look like hicks luckily it doesn't push it to the point where it gets too gross but um Basically, early on, we see this this thing. We don't see what it is. It comes out and it pushes a car off the edge of the freeway. Uh, they kind of get lost in the woods. And then this, whatever the legend of Conga, I think the, in this, they say the Native Americans call it the Oma. Um, and the main sheriff is Native American. He's a kind of a non-believer in a lot of uh, Native American traditions. And his um, deputy is trying to get him kind of to buy more into the community and stuff and he so it's an interesting that that character is actually pretty interesting um how he has to kind of bind to these myths but anyway let's cut to the chase when we get to the the kong i don't know if it's really bigfoot or what what this creature is but it looks awesome it is like it's like seeing a, a smaller king kong who's really fast really clever and is a mixture of that and a survivalist because he's got a mask and he's got bow and arrow and he's got and he's and he moves like lightning. So every scene where he's killing and taking people out, it's like so well directed, those parts. Um, it's, you know, so it's a shame. It's a, it runs a little long probably because of some of the drama. But if you're looking for an original creature feature and that kind of opens up to a bigger myth by the end of the film and it has a couple other weird kind of bonkers creature uh, I, things that I was like, what is this part? It doesn't all land, but the actual uh, Conga character itself is so cool. Um, so I know people are always looking and it's non CG all the way. I mean, it's, that's, what's so cool. It's all practical and just, I don't know. I haven't seen a creature quite like this one before. So I definitely want to put it on people's radars because when he tweeted, I had never heard of this. And when I watched it, I was like, I've never heard anyone mention this movie. There are so so. many movies called Primal Rage that even if I'd seen that, I probably would like, oh, God, I bet I've seen one of them. You will love this creature. Like, you might find some of the drama. Maybe you'll be like some of the drama. You'll be like, okay, I got it. Get to the, you know, but when he's out there taking people out and he moves like lightning, it's it's like, oh, this is cool. Like, I would watch a universe of this character uh, for sure. So that is Primal Rage, Legend of Congo. I I saw it on Amazon Prime. So it is there. Um, 
So before I dive into my very, very deep um, hole, How I will, will we do the Hellraiser? Will we do like for every Hellraiser you're going to mention? Because I watch one, two, three, four. I watch five things at the festival that are very brief. Okay. So, then so we we'll go back and forth. I mean, you know, whatever you Let's want. Let's go back. Before we start, I will say I really liked the toll. And I won't spend a lot of time on this just because I know you watched it a couple of weeks ago. But this um, was definitely out of everything that I've watched over the past couple of weeks. This stuck with me. And I really enjoyed this one. And I've seen it be kind of polarizing online but i really feel like there is like a much bigger movie in this movie that i this could have been a big studio pick is kind of my my takeaway um michael nader who made it um was a usc grad from the program i teach in he also wrote headcount um from a couple of weeks ago but it's just got a really good boogeyman character and i liked the trippiness um so that's the toll which is currently um on amazon yeah and those movies don't you know we talk about it, so maybe we think it's getting play, but no one's really talking about them. So yeah, it's worth mentioning a couple times if you like one. So let's go one and one with some. Um, so Elric saw a bunch of the movies at Panic Fest while I simultaneously had to prep for the Hellraiser Scream Drafts episode I did at Panic Fest. So I had to go back and watch every Hellraiser episode, every Hellraiser episode. I did that a few years ago uh, over time. Like, I've thought about doing it to Amityville. I don't think I have the soul to pull that off. How many films are there? Like, like, because it's not copywritten? Yeah, because like, I could shoot an Amityville film right now. Yeah, there's like weird ones. And yet, there's some, like, we discovered last year, there's some really cool ones later on. Like, the uh, Tony Randall one was really cool. It's about time. It's about time. And the one with the lamp was surprisingly good. Yeah. Yeah, There's some good, and there's probably a couple others that have good. The Dollhouse one is really good. Yeah, but some of them are were just like you know trash but um yeah i remember with hellraiser it definitely was for the most part uh, diminishing returns obviously with a couple you know a couple interesting maybe less hellraisery ones in the mix uh in the middle but like how do you how can you do it without telling us the result because obviously we want people to go listen to that screen draft oh, as well. easy okay. that won't be a problem right. um because one. i have to say even in the ones that i didn't like there was always something that i liked that i that they did wait wait um, all of them including the one where the guy is waiting in the room next door to be called pinhead so I I will not start with that one, but okay. I will get there. Okay. Um, so one, two, and three, I'm not even going to talk about here because we've seen them all. Like one and two, you know, are traditionally considered to be the best. And I will say that we get into a big debate over whether one or two is better. Okay. Um, and even because it was a live show, we could see people participating like it was on Twitch. So people were allowed to respond as we were going. And there was so much dissension with um, everybody who was watching us over one or two, which one was better. And even three within that mix. So that I'm not going to. Oh, shush your face. Two is a lot Um, of fun. Don't get me wrong. The world's great. But one is one of the greatest horror films ever made by by a true mm -hmm. artist. It's like a it's a whole different level. So you'll have to. I got the number one spot. So you'll have to. I got three in one. So I kind of got to determine the fate of all that. Um, So you'll have to listen to figure out the rationale behind it. But I'm going to jump in with Hellraiser Bloodline, which is part four. Um, so I had only seen this one once when it came out in the nineties and I don't think I've watched it since then. I hated it when it came out in the nineties. I thought it was terrible and I've had that taste in my mouth ever since then. And this is probably the first time I've rewatched it since 1996. And I had 
fun. Like this one was a shockingly good time. There was a lot that it was doing that I really liked. Most people know this one as Pinhead in Space because it traverses three completely different time frames. It starts in the 1700s um, during this very kind of um, foppy Baroque period. And then it moves to the 1990s, what was current day at the time when it was made in the late 90s. And then it goes to 2127. Um, where they're in space and the spaceship has just been designed to look like a lament configuration. It's like a season of and television in one minute. It is. It's, it's all over the place. And I have to say, my favorite part of this was the Baroque period because it lended itself to it so well, where we were with the toy maker who had actually been ordered to create the puzzle box. Um, Adam Scott has absolutely beautiful hair in this. He has these long flowing locks. He's far from community or it's sorry, like the from, most- um, from Pawnee in this, but yeah. He's, the most, he's um, one of the most contemporary looking actors. Like, so it's funny to think is. of him in a period piece. It's, it's so wild. Um, but it's the whole kind of Baroque setup. It feels right for Hellraiser and it's created by this gentleman and it goes this, I have to say, whereas the kind of true understanding of what Hellraiser is, what Clive Barker intended it to be, gets really lost as it goes through the kind of like pleasure, pain, blending, the idea, angels to some, demons to other, exploring the furthest reaches of the mind, what the body is capable of, that if the body is capable of pain or pleasure, I have to experience both because it's unexperienced realms, Mm. was what Barker originally intended. And that it was all about curiosity being kind of the biggest drive. And in this, it's this very kind of libertine, hedonistic concept of this is some type of pleasurable pain that I have yet to experience. It's this very kind of hedonistic, everything is about the body and how I'm currently feeling. And so it goes all the way back to the guy who ordered the toy maker to make the box that would allow him to control a demon. Um, And so he brings a demon back to the world and then it follows it through um, the nineties and then into space. But um, I remember giving it away to those who haven't seen it it is all for kind of a twist reason. I remember having actually fairly clever, like I saw that one again, maybe last year and I hadn't seen it in same time as you. And I was like, okay, it's not terrible. It's nowhere near as fun as the first three, but it's got like ideas going through it all the way. And even the 90s stuff was really boring to me. Like it did nothing for me, but the hedonistic libertine opulence of the 17th century. And then in space, the whole concept was that they are doing this out in space because they want to get the box away from earth. They're doing tests on it out in space to see what happens if they open it with no one around um, and how it responds. And so it's, it's fascinating in Mm. that. So it's got big ideas there's some execution. It spends a lot of time in the nineties, which is just generally boring, but I had a lot of fun with this. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. I had, I had a lot of fun with this one and I admittedly was not expecting to. Um, So revisit, Hellraiser bloodline and going with an open mind. Okay. If we're going to go uh, back and forth here. So uh, yep. my panic fest, I just been jamming a few movies in because partially for a number of reasons, just to see what's happening out there and also to look for, you know, interesting actors. It's always, always fun to look through indies and see what's going on. But uh, the first one I saw was probably the one I felt most kind of neutral about, even though it's, I think being plugged as one of the bigger ones called the gin. 
Um, and I just watched Toby Hooper's Gin last uh, two weeks ago. But this is by a, a young directing team. It's about a mute boy who has uh, basically finds a book in a new apart- new house where he's living with his dad. His mother died the year before, and he uh, has had some sort of surgery that has rendered him mute. Um, and he is uh, he basically finds a book and makes a pact with a gin. He follows all the steps. He's probably like ten. And uh, he is not ready for what his his dream is to have bring his voice back. But slowly he's ushering in this very kind of demonic looking woman. And it's it's actually it is definitely low budget. You know, they're doing very well on that front. Like that, it strikes me as a trial movie for a duo to get like, you know, a nun sequel or something, which I could totally see based on this. For me, it was just a little too mainstream generic in that kind of when you're trying to make the Hollywood film, but on the indie scale. I always find those to be a little less interesting myself, but there was a few moments with the, the, the kind of gin, which is also in the shape of the, the mom for parts of that were actually pretty scary, like in terms of the t- gnashing teeth and eyes and following sounds that were pretty interesting as a decent twist. Uh, so, I, you know, I think a lot of people will like this one a lot. I'm going to guess that it probably will come to shutter or um, might be might be an IFC midnight, actually, this one um, from memory. So that is the gin. Um, and I have more more of these that will drop in a sec. Well, I'm going into Hellraiser Inferno next. Okay. So, um, this is that is the Derrickson? A, yeah, this is the okay. Scott Derrickson one. This one's good, yeah. and this one most people kind of think of as being, you know, a competent movie. It's not great. It's not one, two, or three, but it's still something fascinating about it. Um, this is the Scott. It's directed by Scott Derrickson. It's neo noir. It's about a police detective played by Craig Sheffer, um, who from, from Nightbreed yeah. and, and Turbulence Three, but fine, Nightbreed. Um, and he is heavily flawed, heavily flawed. And after a night of cocaine fueled sex with a prostitute, um, while his wife thinks he's at work, he uh, then falls asleep, wakes up the next morning, and she's like strung up in the shower, dead, holding a puzzle box. And he has no idea what's going on, but he's scared to death. He's going to be blamed for the crime. And he's suddenly really fascinated by the puzzle box. And all of this stuff keeps following him. He keeps finding these other murders. They all seem to be kind of happening to people that are affiliated with him, like it's circling him. Um, And at the same time, he keeps finding hints of the puzzle box and it keeps making its way back to him. My biggest complaint with the movie was that he is so flawed. It's a little hard to care at him, uh, care about him at points. It's literally like watching Bad Lieutenant hmm. where you're just like, oh God, he's just fucking horrible um, the whole goddamn time. Um, and he keeps making increasingly shittier decisions the entire time. So by like midway through, I was like, well, Pinhead, come get him because he's just horrible. Um, but that said, you can definitely see Scott Derrickson's style it does have a, a very kind of dark quality. It brings in a lot of religious stuff to it. Um, it's got a little bit more texture than we see in some of the other ones. Um, so this one I, was very watchable. This is very the watchable. one that wasn't a Hellraiser script originally, right? There's actually most of these from oh. here out were not Hellraiser scripts until we get back to Revelation and Weird. Judgment. Weird. Um, most of these are not Hellraiser scripts. Oh. They were just wedged into it. So this one I assume is as well. Um, this is the last one before we get into what most folks know is like the Rick Boda trilogy where he does three in a row. Um, one but of yeah, them this one's- Internet Cafe with Lance Henriksen. Uh, that one is not Rick Bode. Wait, which I, don't know one? Which other, I gotta Hell double World check that. That's, that's Hell I, World. That's the one I remember just being like, what are we doing? Is that one Rick Bode? I gotta I check. I, I know he did three a, of them. Yeah. I know he did Debtor. 
Um, but yeah, this one, Scott Derrickson, very watchable, um, neo-noir and quite gory, actually. This is one of yeah, the gorier yeah. ones. It's uh, got the wire twins in it too. Interesting. Yeah. Um, no, I'm pretty sure that one's famous of all the, all the ones that weren't based on originally scripts for that. The one thing I remember about that one was that it was meant to be just like a straight serial killer kind of movie that then turned into this or something like that. And it would totally work as a straight, cause it does, it has like an angel heart quality mm. to it. Cool. Um, whereas he's investigating things are getting trippier and everything's kind of leading back to him. So it definitely has like a, a good neo-noir detective story, which probably would have been equally successful if it was not kind of a wedged in pinhead. And I will say the puzzle box feels like it's infused throughout because they make it part of the crime scene. Pinhead just kind of shows up at one point and is like, this is why I've been doing this. And Not as like, bad oh, as okay. what we're getting to with Pinhead. When he- yes, yes. <laughs> Pinhead on call, as I like to think of it. Um, okay, uh, the next one I think is the one that most of our listeners will probably like most. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is called The Last Matinee, uh, though I don't like that title as much as The Red Screening, which is what it's been called. It's from uh, Uruguay. I thought it was from Argentina, but it's from Uruguay. And it is set in the late 80s, and it is a complete homage to uh giallo slash late 80s slashers a mixture of that kind of period what's this called it's called last matinee or red screening i think it's gonna be a bloody disgusting release you you would have a lot of fun it's basically this girl shows up to this uh movie theater it's pouring rain in this urban decaying kind of city uh old beautiful palace movie it's like cinema paradiso meets the slasher is what some people said uh she goes in you realize her dad is this you know getting too old but he's a projectionist and she's like you have to go home he's like oh you don't remember how to run this place and she like shows them that she totally understands it and she's there to study she kind of makes him go home and as she got in there's only about eight people even in the theater for this matinee showing of a like a frankenstein type movie uh this one guy shows up and he has this weird jar like looks like pickles but they're like eyeballs and he's wearing a trench coat and he's basically your slasher character he comes in and then you have all these characters you have little kids a little kid who snuck into the theater you have a couple going just to make out and there's some sexual things that happen that are kind of interesting you have a couple just teenagers who are just there to kill time and very very minimal amount of people and uh, a guy working there is always bothering the girl upstairs but she's in the projection booth and really i'm not going to have to tell you much it becomes a very straight you know people are being knocked off in secret initially before obviously it comes to light it's all set in the theater never leaves the theater it the you see posters for uh anguish opera like so it was cool to see especially with the eyeball references which was clearly the big ass luna you know movie theater set um reference which i thought was super cool to see that and it's i wouldn't say it's cheap it's definitely low budget but it never feels like like it doesn't feel like a super indie in some ways um because it's also period piece but i think people are going to really appreciate that it's totally a throwback. It's not, it's committed to being like a movie from that time period. It's not just aping it. It's kind of reveling in it, which I thought was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend this one for people who kind of miss movies being that simple and the setting's really nice. And it's nice that it's also set in a country that you haven't seen many slashers from. So um, that is Last Matinee, the red screening. This sounds awesome. It's you have fully sold me on this yeah, one. It's a fun one. Okay, well, um, you know what? I'm going to do two here because one doesn't need a lot of discussion, and that is um, Hellraiser Hellseeker. This is the start of the Rick Boda trilogy, and this is by far, I have to say, it bordered Revelations for like my least favorite. 
it, there just there wasn't much to it, and it just didn't work. What, what happens tell. in that one? What world is it set in? Like, I, that's it's Ashley Lawrence and Dean Winters, and Ashley Lawrence is kind of reviving her role to a degree. I mean, it really doesn't have much to do with Kirsty. I think it's supposed to be a connection, um, but they're a husband and wife going through some shit, and they're in a car wreck, and then they start seeing things. That's right. And there's not much to it. It's a lot. It feels like a '90s, um, like sleeping with the enemy style thriller with the puzzle box kind of wedged in there. Mm-hmm. Not well. Um, and so this one, it just did not do much for me because it was just like a drama of people backstabbing each other by making deals with Pinhead. Yeah. And it didn't do much for me. But then we get on to Hellraiser Debtor, um, which is the second directed by Rick Boda, which I've mentioned before, I consider to be one of the fun um, inclusions in the Hellraiser franchise. This was another one where the script was purchased. Um, the It was by, I can't even remember their names now, Michael. Um, it was two screenwriters, but they had done some big horror stuff. Like they had done notable stuff. And uh, they had written a story just about a cult of people, um, one guy in particular, who can bring people back from the dead and an investigative reporter who travels to Bucharest to learn about them and ends up getting killed and brought back by the cult and then everything that she's going through. And so the shitty title. One, really. <laughs> I really like this mm. one. I think it's got some style. I find that this the whole kind of region of Bucharest, the the reporter, this is another one that's really neo-noir um, because she's doing research the entire time. She's looking for one particular girl who went missing and then was rumored to be dead, but then there's been sightings of her all over the place. And so um, that leads her to the cult. At its core, it's doing something a little bit more interesting than when Pinhead comes into it. Hmm. Like the movie itself feels high concept. Like it's doing something and covering a territory that I haven't seen in a lot of horror films before. It's an interesting cult. It's an interesting setup because it's all happening kind of within the gutter punk society of Bucharest. And so there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. And then Pinhead kind of shows up and is just pissed at them because they're killing each other and coming back and he controls that realm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's connections with the guy who runs the cult being like a direct descendant of the original toy maker years ago. But even that is very kind of flimsy. Like it's just like, oh yeah, my grandfather made this box. Mm. Um, But it's mostly just pinhead angry because they're like violating the laws of nature. But the actual cult, the setting, um, it does follow the hedonistic world because the debtors talk about how it's all about, you know, taste death, live life. It's all about kind of experiencing everything you can while preserving your own self. And so it's, this was by far one of my other favorite, better inclusions. Um, not as good as Inferno getting there though. And that I don't was, know what Graham Skipper thinks of that one until I listen. Yeah. And so that was, um, Hellraiser Hellseeker, which you can probably skip and Hellraiser Debtor, which don't go in. It's not a great Hellraiser movie, but it's a good movie. Okay. Uh, so my favorite of the festival that I got to see, and I'm sure it will be um, probably make my top 10 at the end of the year, even though I'd maybe like to set up more than uh, the kind of where it totally went, but it's called Caveat. And it is mm-hmm. another Irish horror film. Uh, Damien McCarthy directed this. This is just really offbeat and strange. And I will try not to say too much because a lot of it, a lot of the feeling of the movie is because it seems so strange and absurd as it goes so i'll only go up a little bit and there's not much to it once you get into it so it's basically opens with this girl who's very dirty you know clothes she's in going into this basement holding this old 
bunny rabbit that has drumming capabilities. And when she holds it up to certain places where she feels something like a presence, the bunny starts drumming. And you're like, what am I watching? So it's a very odd open, like cold open, where you're really kind of just drawn in because it's so kind of eerie and odd. And then it just cuts to this kind of businessman uh, making an offer to this bearded kind of, he looks like a drifter type guy. And he's like, look, you know, I'm sorry about your accident. And yeah, I meant to see you earlier. And the guy has no clue. He remembers this guy. And he says, look, I'll give you $200 if you will babysit my brother's daughter, you know, my brother died recently and it's, his wife's missing. And, you know, I just, you know, and the guy's like, oh, well, why do I have to babysit? Oh, you know, she's not mentally well. And I worry about her and she's all alone in this house. And he's like, well, why don't you do it? Oh, I can't, you know, just there's some reason. And then, of course, they, he goes, OK, I guess I'll do it. It's 200 bucks for three days or something. And he drives him out there and suddenly it's on a little island. And he's like, wait, you didn't tell me it's on an island. And she's like, oh yeah, no, I didn't mention that. It's just, you know, it's just, there's a little bit of water. He's like, but I can't swim. He's like, oh, it's going to be fine. I'll be back in the morning. And they go across on a little boat. They get to this little house. And then he's like, all right, um, now she doesn't want anyone in her room at night. She's very scared. She shuts down. So you're going to have to wear this. And it's literally, and that's why it's like, at this point, I'm like, okay, I'm in. Whatever this movie is going to be, it is literally a straight jacket with a giant <laughs> chain attached to it. So you can only go so many directions in the house and you can't get out of it because it's locked. <laughs> and wow. he's going to take it. And the guy's like, uh, actually, no, I'll go home now. I don't want to take your job. And the guy's like, oh, come on, trust me. It's just to stop you from going in her room. You can go everywhere else in the house. But you just can't get into the room and he, you know, shows him where it can go. And the guy's like, ah, oh, I guess he's kind of like a slacker dude with a big beard. He's like, okay, I guess I'll do this job. And the guy puts the thing on him. And then of course he tries to go to the bathroom straight away. And he's like a foot short of the bathroom. He's like, motherfucker. <laughs> like, like you're instantly real <laughs> the problems he's going to face. And so it's a really kind of absurd setup. And then it, everything starts to have payoff as it goes. But then you start to, you meet this girl and she seems not quite right. And she shuts down and like covers her face and won't talk, but she's in her room. And then we have to, he, they, they strike up a bit of a friendship over this time. Like, like what happened to your mom? Why is no one looking for her? And what happened here? And it starts to like a flower, you know, it definitely has these layers that take you back to origin stories of how they all got here. So it's, mm-hmm. it's much more less horror in, in the middle and more of a clever noir type idea, I think. But where it all ended up, it's a really, original feeling movie I, I haven't seen something quite like this in a long time and i found it very satisfying on that level and i think a lot of people who are interested in something that's just i mean as soon as i saw that jacket with the chain i'm like this is insane like who's gonna put this on but this guy would and he's being taken advantage of in a sense and just how it kind of opens up and she's pretty interesting too, the girl in this story because she's pretty hardcore uh, by the way she also has a crossbow a lot of the time so that's all i'm gonna tell you so there's a lot to uh whet your appetite uh but not a lot of explanation so that is called caveat i don't know when that one's coming out but i know it's um being pretty well received probably a festival thing for a bit that's awesome oh my gosh that one sounds great yeah um okay so now the next one in or this is the third in the rick boda trilogy that takes us to hellraiser hell world most people know this as pinhead goes to the internet Oh, this one. So I still hold the theory that this would be a fun movie if Pinhead was not in it. Mm. This is another one where they grabbed a script. In this case, it's about a group of kids who all play this online game. It's kind of like a culty game online. Um, And one of them becomes so kind of obsessed with the game that he kills himself. Mm. And then at his, his father invites them all to come to this like bereavement. Um, And, Lance Henriksen and then crazy shit starts happening. Um, And Pinhead 
is there-ish. Lance um, would have actually made a good pinhead. Right? Like, if you actually put him in the makeup, he would look amazing as that character. He probably would. Um, so yeah, this one, it's better than fear.com and it's kind of trying to do the same thing. Um, it feels better than stay alive and it's trying to do some of those same things Uh of like the killer, you know, the, the kind of dying in a video game and killing through a video game. It's trying to do some of the same things. It's better than both of those, but then pinhead comes in and you're just like, it's got something fun. It's not a good Hellraiser film. Pinhead does not fit in it in any capacity. Um, And plus the whole pinhead internet thing just feels really awkward. So there's that that like mid or late nineties. Is that when that's it? No, this would, this would have been 2000s. Yeah. It's, and it was around the same time as like the fear.com and stuff like that. Fear.com. I wanted to be good. Like, you know, I like William Malone. It has like images, but it, it just does not work that movie. Yeah, Hellworld is 2005. Um, So, And then another six years pass, and then they come up with Hellraiser Revelations, which I know you fucking despise. Oh, is that the one like, let's go to Mexico, and here's a a handy cam? Yeah, and then they are in basically in a living room for 90% of the movie while Hellraiser hangs out in a chair one room over and just goes, yes, yes. He's just pacing. Biting my time. Um, That made me furious. And then I read about it and I was like, yeah, it was just made so they could hold on to the rights. Three weeks. It was made in three weeks. And so I will say, um, I do not like this one. Graham Skipper, who I was playing against, made valid points. Um, But that said, I don't like this one. And then I will quickly also go ahead and talk about how we're judgment which is the last one before we um have gone through before the the chain has changed hand a couple of times and we've had a few different you know people who are going to do big budget remakes and now i think that we have finally landed somewhere with both television and film rights which are entirely separate and entail entirely different parts of the Hellraiser franchise. There are certain Cenobites with each one of them and certain parts of the mythos that only travel with TV or only travel with film or only travel with the book rights. It's a real fascinating franchise to study. But the main thing is it's out but, of the Miramax hands. It's out of the Weinstein's hands. That's what's it important is. because it means it which, creatives again. Yeah, you know? which has been a cringe moment before every single one of these films when you're hit and play and then immediately, you know, produced by every Weinstein pops up. It's immediate cringe moment. So I'm glad to see it get away from that history. Um, but judgment. So Gary Tunicliffe famously only had $300,000. This movie was made for $300,000, oh, which is insane to think of a Hellraiser film being made for that little. But that said, at first I was like, Gary's really trying to do something different here. He is really trying, you know, and that said, I, I, I don't exactly enjoy this. Um, it's pretty but unpleasant. He is, it's unpleasant, which I'll talk about in just a sec. But that said, for Gary only having 300000 this has big ambition mm-hmm. for 300000 Because for 300000 you can't have chains flying out of the walls, ripping people's faces off. You just can't. And so he instead does this kind of, I think they call it a Stygian um, jury that decides whether people are guilty and go to hell or not. And Pinhead is kind of part of this. Um, uh, John Gulliger is here. And not being able to execute these like heavy gore moments, instead they went with just like vomity, unpleasant type stuff, like generally kind of just unpleasant and gross it's not Hellraiser in that sense because it doesn't have body horror. It's just more kind of conceptually gross and disgusting. But that said, I applaud Gary for doing something different and not just having 
you know, pinhead sitting in a chair one room over while you go through a family drama, that he actually really did try something. And the effects in it that he does do are really tight. There's a lot of production design. Even if the whole thing is happening in one house with five actors for the most part, he's trying something. So I'm going to give him some props for that. And that brings me up to date with the Hellraiser franchise. All right. I'll, I'll knock out these two because they're kind of similar. Uh, another one I actually really like that I don't know if will be for everyone because it's super minimal and indie, but I liked the performances by both people very much. It's called Threshold, and it's a uh, sister who's probably been you know um, a, a, an addict, and her brother is called to kind of help her out. And he goes to see her, and there's a lot of tension between them. And then basically it's them on the road for the entire movie. So it's a road trip, two-person kind of movie where she basically explains to him, look, somebody, a group of people put a curse on me, a binding spell, binding me to this other man. I don't know where he is, but only one of us can live. And I can feel his pain. He can feel my pain. And you have to believe me. And the guy's like, I do not believe you. You're a drug addict, but I am going to help you because you're my sister. And they just, it, most of it isn't harm. I'd say 90% of the movie is probably the two of them just kind of reconnecting. But I liked both the actors so much that I was into it. I liked the, how indie it was. I think it's shot on iPhones. Um, and there is, it does have horror payoff by the end. And so I thought that was interesting to see what, like, what this cool idea of a, a cross country curse movie. So I liked this movie, Threshold, uh, directed by Pal Robinson and Robert, uh, Patrick Robert Young, um, who are a duo. Um, and I'm pairing it with, because I saw another film that I almost didn't mention here, but friend of our, us, uh, AJ Bowen, I think last time we saw him at Panic Fest a couple of years ago, he had just shot this. And I think he might have mentioned you, something called Night Drive. Yeah, I talked with him on that panel, at right? the last Panic Fest because we were doing um, micro budgets, which are films made for less than I think we set the cap at like two fifty. Mm. And so, um, and he talked about shooting Night Drive, which was a micro budget, which is the guy Brad Burr. It's Brad Burr and Megan Leon. I think they were both behind that one, Dead uh, Dead Night or whatever it was, the Christmas one that had that had AJ and a couple of people last year, Coscarelli produced, it was called Apple Card at one point, it changed names. Yeah. Anyway, uh, both the both AJ and Sophie Dalla were both in that movie. Um, and this is very simple. It's definitely not horror. I don't even think it touches horror, but it has got elements of genre. And I'm not even going to say which genre, uh, but maybe more Twilight zone uh where it goes. But it's very, it's got, it suffers from one issue, which is they're both really good in it. Um, it's really mm-hmm. fun to see. AJ's literally the lead. He's in every shot. So it's fun to see him you know, get an opportunity like that again, like just in a big, in a movie like this. Um, again, like the movie I just talked about, it's just two people in a car for most of it. Um, the one issue is the genre element doesn't come in until really in my mind until like the last 20 minutes of the movie, which means really it's fairly realistic. There's other things happening. There's bodies, people, you know, they run, hit, hit, a, hit somebody with the car. There's some really funny stuff between them too. But I feel like if you wait that long and then introduce something that's actually really interesting that happens towards the end of this movie, it felt too late to rehook somebody. And I was a willing participant. Like, I want to watch it because I know the people. Um, but I couldn't help but think I think a lot of people wouldn't get into it quick enough. Um, but anyway, I, thought it was, I still thought it was well made and interesting. I just think the script, maybe the engine of the script wasn't quite there. Um, but both actors do a good job. And that one's Night Drive. So Threshold and Night Drive. Uh, Threshold was probably, in terms of the, the kind of character thing, but a bit more in my bag. But uh, those are the last two I say. So there's a lot of other films playing, some that I'd already seen at Sundance. Um, but yeah, I saw some good stuff. And again, look, Panic Fest, of all the festivals I've been to this last year, 
by far the tech was the best at this one because they yes I, I could watch it right on Roku. Uh, so I was watching all these movies on a, on a TV screen without, you know, screen sharing and stuff. And it was great. So I was. That I, was so nice. I didn't get to check any out yet, but I started going through the list and looking at them. And the fact that it is on my Roku, because that was my issue with Fantasia and my issue with um, we did the Nightstream one is I was watching these absolutely amazing films, but I was having to watch them on my laptop. Yeah. Or I have some type of cord that I can use to hook my laptop into my television um, so that I can kind of like airplay that way, but not through the air because I still have to have the fucking cord. Um, But that said, like it was still, I was seeing a degraded, there was definitely a degrading that happened in that. Um, So being able to watch something on my Roku sounds amazing. And this future seems pretty cool how they, what's cool about this one because of the timing compared to the other ones is, you know, the people who were at Panic Fest were attending Panic Fest and having a blast. And people like us, I was in LA and enjoying the movies. I think, you know, I just think that's the future of these festivals. I think there's going to always be people wanting to travel to go to a festival because it's an in-person amazing experience. But if you can open the movies to people who aren't there, I just, I think that's win-win for everyone. I think it can cut down on the exclusiveness, but not the fun. You know, and so. not the, I think it would help with expense as well because yeah. festivals for the most part do not make money. That's right. why most film festivals have volunteers and many of them function as nonprofits um, because it's, it's, you know, if you're having some mad event once a year, it's really hard to turn a profit in that short amount of time, especially if you're not showing first run films, like for the smaller festivals, they definitely have to function as nonprofits. But if you're opening up your ticket sales globally, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. So I'm hoping that some of the ones this year have been really able to profit from the online model and can really keep it going. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm very curious. I think festivals can are, benefit if they're smart. They're going to benefit from what happened this year in the long run and just find ways to hybridize and make them more interesting. But um, so, yeah, that was my festival run. I also I, I won't go into it. I also saw a short. I watched a bunch of shorts um, and I saw one called Coil that I just thought was super cool about a, a woman's anxiety to go out. It manifests in this like this thing this kind of like uh worm type thing inside her so it's like a little short body horror thing that I just thought was it just felt right for for a nice quick like eight minute short so uh, i thought that was pretty neat but that was my panic fist well i won't go too deep into this unlike the documentary i want to see it i definitely want to see this one for sure i watched q into the storm and before y'all are like oh my god that's not scary becca oh no this was by far the scariest Mm. thing i've seen this year (laughs) um and last year so i was not familiar with q um up until uh last fall once the elections got close and um i only knew because of eyes wide shut i always would hear these theories about eyes wide shut written by somebody who was part of cute and it was so out there that it made it almost fascinating because i was like what is this idea you know literally i heard about them on the news in the fall and it was while i was um on the other end of the country it was while i was still at my parents house in september and i'd seen a news report where they were talking about it you know how big of a role it's going to play in the election and trump's retweeting them and stuff like that and i remember my dad and my uncle's who are, I have to say, the most Republican dudes ever, are sitting on the front porch one evening and they're bitching about immigration or something like that. And um, we're a very bifurcated family um, politically. We always have the rule, like, just not at the table um, rule. So, yeah, my dad views me as, like, Hollywood snowflake. And, yeah, we, we just don't bring it to the table. Um, and, you know, I still love him dearly. 
but fine. Um, so he and my hardcore Republican uncles are sitting on the porch talking after dinner and we're talking about something. And I was like, so guys, what's Q? And immediately they were like, well, those people are just fucking nuts. And I was like, what, what? And they were like, they think that everybody out in Hollywood sucks blood from babies and is a bunch of pedophiles and worships Satan and all this stuff. And then they started filling me in on some of the theories. And I was like, oh my, this is fascinating. And then, um, so I'd kind of been peripherally hearing about it, but then I watched the documentary on HBO. And my HBO Max, right? HBO Max. And so this is a five, six part documentary. And it was impressive on a filmmaking level, I have to say, because what it does, it traces the whole history of Q. It goes from its infancy, how it kind of comes out of um, a bunch of different kind of message boards, 4chan, things like that. It com- it has a lot of roots to Gamergate as well, a lot of incel roots, and then where it goes to 8chan. And it follows some of the key players who were involved in 4chan and then the move to 8chan. And it specifically lands on these three people who were involved in it and really does kind of push that one of these three people seems to have an awful lot of access and intel and most likely that they could be Q. And it investigates all these other avenues of maybe it's this person. Oh, it could be this person. It could be Steve Bannon. I don't know. Could it be General Flynn? But it always comes back to these three people. And the biggest thing, and it goes all the way up through the Capitol insurrections and Biden's um, election. Oh, wow. And then it looks at the Q followers' responses after the election. And so it really is kind of this inclusive chronological journey. The big thing is that on the discovery, kind of the the interviews with these three people, there's a lot of dissension because there's a lot of kind of ownership issues of the site and people wanting their name removed when it got too racist and stuff like that. And so um, within the people who are being interviewed, there's definitely two teams. And somehow the filmmaker is able to work both sides equally, mm. making both sides of this debate treat him like he's their confidant, like they are confiding in him constantly. And so it's real fascinating. Even if, if you know, you love cute, you hate cute, whatever. It's fascinating in that capacity. Well, I like you should um, like you. <laughs> just, no, just throw it out. No. That's not even political. That's just, just, just don't even at this point. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, the there's serpent. In which case I can get behind Q the wing serpent. That's the only, I will always get behind Q the wing serpent, but, um, kind of regardless of political beliefs, I'll say yeah. where it is a fascinating documentary is it literally does track how just things are casually being put on the internet. And then five minutes later, somebody believes it. Mm. And then five minutes after that, it's been retweeted 20 times. And then five minutes after that, it pops up on chat boards in a completely different version as coming you know, down from the government. And then two days later, a hundred people have retweeted it. And it really does follow kind of a pattern of how misinformation starts and how um, the idea of just planting a small seed from it's literally God's must be crazy yeah. um, theory at practice, how just one tiny drop can form this massive, massive thing. At the end of it, it really does point to um, one person that it is clear the filmmaker truly believes is, glo- is Q um, because of Kubrick. Yeah, Kubrick. Not quite. Kubrick. Uh. 
<laughs> I want him to be like, um, he never died. It was all just he like, never dies. The moon landing, it was yeah, all cute. All um, but it it really does. The film does seem to point to okay. one clear. Okay, this is it. Does it um, hold? But, you know how there's been this. I think this issue with documentaries on Netflix and stuff lately, where what could have been done in two or three episodes goes seven, you know, or whatever. Oh God, no, I could have, there were so many areas of this, like it touches on Gamergate and the people who were behind Gamergate that, and I mean, touches like it takes up 10 minutes worth of screen time with a couple of interviews. And I was like, that should have been an episode. Um, It gets into um, how none of the people who follow Q actually want to go to 8chan because 8chan is like basically a deplorable site filled with like child porn and racist content. So there's all of these other boards that have popped up and then people who kind of nominate themselves as being willing to go to 8chan to uh, pilfer through the content to get to the Q stuff so that they can bring it back to the more reputable site. Like there is so much happening in this society wise that I'm like, wow, YouTube coming up. Now if in you it dropped and Pinhead into that story. Now that's the, the internet. There's, that is a so. fucking internet hellraiser right <laughs> like, there. Drop him right um, in the middle of that story. Uh, it feels so not horror in any capacity, but y'all I'm going to talk about it here. Cause that was one fascinating yeah. fucking journey to be on. Yeah. I, I'm very curious to watch it. I, I have a problem where I can only, because it's not on Roku still, right? Or is it on Roku now? HBO Max. It's, I don't know if HBO Max, I always watch it through Amazon. Yeah. I have one TV that um, I can work on, but the downstairs one doesn't. So I never watch HBO Max for that reason, but I, this, I really yeah, want to watch. I, just, so I might watch the first one tonight actually. And, oh, and I have to say, I didn't include it on the list, but I've been watching them as well, oh, you just started, which is, right? um, yeah, I'm two episodes in, which is the new show on Amazon prime. That is intense. Yeah, I was um, hoping to get to it so we could just like I just saw Travis Stevens tweet about it last night, saying it's one of the best, you know, shot, edited, everything. I've seen okay. other people give it a lot of controversy because it's so intense and so violent and graphic as it goes. So I'm very curious to see, you know, it's the horror parts are not scary. Like even in the first episode, you spend the entire first episode on the edge of your mm. seat. But it's much more, um, think about that opening scene of Lovecraft Country where they're being run out of the county. It's like that. It's about a black family um, who goes through a lot of racist, um, awful, awful, abhorrent things in their South, in the South. I think they start in South Carolina, maybe North Carolina. Um, So they decide to, to fresh start. This is in the 1950s in Compton. California, which at the time was a very white kind of upper middle class neighborhood. And they arrive not knowing that and not knowing that the law has just changed. There was a law up to like the moment that they moved in that said that they did not allow African-Americans in that neighborhood. And then there's some type of governmental repeal or within the state that says you can't say things like that. And so they are literally like the first moving into the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And the Who neighbors all- first? Yeah. The neighbors all strike up these little cute, like coups taking action against them. Some more violent than others. Now here's the crazy part. Um, No, that's fucking crazy. The whole, the whole thing is just absolutely crazy. But on a personal level, um, the head husband in the neighborhood who is trying to rally the men to do absolutely heinous fucking shit is Pat Healy. Um, So seeing. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so I did not know that, and then Pat all of a sudden, who was cast in a Martin Scorsese movie last yes. night, which I was very right. excited to see, which so, made, which uh, I had a feeling played with this, but yeah, so I'm watching it, and there's this scene where all of the like 
buttoned up white, you know, 1950s husbands are all in a garage trying to come up with like, what is the most violent thing that we can do to the family that isn't illegal? And there is Pat Healy, like, I got an idea. And he becomes the ringleader. Um, and I was like, oh my God, Pat. What's the movie where he's on the phone with the girl at McDonald's? Um, oh, uh, control? Compliance, compliance. Compliance, I that's like, that's, it. I got an idea. We're just going to phone call them. <laughs> We're cranking. I always like, picture uh, him as the owner of like taters oh, yeah, in yeah, Starry yeah. Eyes. But, so. but his greatest achievement will always be, no matter what he does in his career, Cheap Thrills is one of the greatest, Thrills. one of my favorite always. indies ever. Um, which is actually ties him pretty well because Cheap Thrills was produced by our next guest. And that wasn't planned. Yes, it was. Uh, so uh, just we, we're not reviewing uh, Jacob's Wife here because uh, you will hear from our voices how much we enjoyed that movie uh, in the uh, in the interview it's we fun. got to. Yeah, we did a fun live Zoom. So I think if you're if the festival's still on, maybe at some point the video of this will pop up somewhere on YouTube. But uh, it was a lot of fun talking to Barbara and uh, Travis, both people who've been on previous variations of our shows in the past, and it was fun to get to talk to them again. And uh, and it really is a very fun. Uh, it has a feeling of throwback. It, mix, it feels like 80s movies, but mixed with like an, a modern indie thing with a lot of heart. Um, and we both just dug it and had a good time. And it is yeah. out in theaters as of this episode drop. Welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am one of your hosts, Eric Kane, and joining me live at Panic Fest is Dr. Rebecca McKendry. Hello. Oh my gosh. I miss being in person at Panic Fest so much. This was such a great festival last year. It's the last time we hung out. It's, I know. It really, it really was. It yeah. I remember being at Panic Fest and we were starting to get like news of the virus and everything. And I remember being more conscious of like shaking hands with people than I usually was. Like it was just somewhere in the back of my brain. But it didn't. Really- I remember hugging more than ever and having my face. I know you were like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna hug." And people, uh, whiskey we had, was involved. We had done something, and I can't even remember what it was with people touching your face more than usual at Panic Fest because I have pictures of like Patrick touching your face and things like that. It's a it's a punchable face. I don't know why everyone's touching it. It's a New Zealand thing. Um, but but yeah, no, we we were bummed to not be able to be there this year. But I've got to say, their lineup this year, they're blowing. It felt like it's maybe four times bigger than it was even was in person so it seems like a great Mm -hmm. step for the festival and an amazing assortment of films that we're going to be checking out after this um we started strong uh we started with a film called jacob's wife and we were asked to do any show we wanted and we decided we wanted to talk to old friends two people had been on old versions of shows of us never together and not neither for a very long time so uh please welcome producer star barbara crampton hi Hi! <laughs> and uh, producer, director, and I'm just adding hyphenates as we get to Writer. know you for a year. Editor. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Editor. Uh, Travis Stevens, welcome. Well, hello. Get ready for Sweeps Week. You got the star power of Barbara <laughs> and Travis joining you two. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, it has guys. been years, right? Like, I think, Barbara, I think it was Killer POV, which is like two shows yeah. ago. And uh, Travis, I think we had you on for your last film, but even that feels like it's been at least a year. Yeah, uh, and you were you were deathly ill. I was. I remember that, and I don't sound so great tonight. I'm coming straight off a four hour lecture, so I'm kooky, um, but I'm feeling groovy. So yeah, but <laughs> I missed when you were on the show before, and so yeah, we're glad we could get you both back. Well, let's, thank you. Maybe jump in there, like with the well, you're just kind of saying producing stuff. Like I think there's something really interesting because both of you are producers of material, and you mm-hmm. both are the opposite of static. And I think that in a career is a really 
now, now more than ever, super important. This idea that like I, a few years ago, I would have gone, oh, okay. producer Travis Stevens. Now I think of you as somebody who produces, directs, and is always looking to champion voices, and I, okay. not just your own. And Barbara, it seems like you've spent the last few years really cultivating the producer side, and with this movie, maybe taking it to a you know a special level in terms mm-hmm. of finding material that you're, yeah. you're going to stay passionate about. So let's let's just dive in there about finding the material of this project, and also just the career side of producing your own work. Right. Well, I'll start if you don't mind, Travis. I think when when uh, when I did your next, I realized that all of the people that worked on that movie were hyphenates. Mm-hmm. Adam was a cinematographer and uh, a director and an editor, and Joe Swanberg was a producer, a writer, an actor. Uh, you know, then we had Ty West in there. He was being an actor, and he produces in movies, wrote his own stuff, directed. And so after being away from the business for a long time, coming back, I realized this is what the kids do now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's only continued as I've gone on and also seeing Travis, you know, what, what he's been able to do over the last number of years, starting his career. Um, mostly uh, you were in distribution initially, weren't you, Travis? And then you moved into producing and then, you know, and really when he produced We Are Still Here, I felt like he could do any job at that point, but he just was the producer, but he, you know, he knew about everything and really could do everything. And then he's moved into doing, uh, you know, a hyphenate amount of work and, and adding that to his, you know, what he does. And I just thought, well, if I wanted to add anything, I think I would want to add producing more more than anything because I really love and maybe that's because I'm an actress and I like characters and I like stories that's what's meaningful to me mm-hmm. I don't care if I'm in the movie or not I happen to be in this one but if I read a good story I I want to make that movie I don't care if I have a part in it I just love a good story that has meaning and so I just felt like I should add something and then it kind of snowballed from that and just things started developing so the first time you guys worked together was we are still here mm-hmm. that was it the first time okay so what about you Tra- travis in terms of like uh finding material like i, I guess because I, I, we've talked before and people can listen to old episodes and old interviews but more like how it keeps changing for you like what you're looking for for yourself to invest because as we all know it's a couple of years of lost time every time right every time so, you so, make so, so you, the older we get the more cautious we are or just more thoughtful maybe but how do you find that that evolving for you right now well and, and i'm glad you you mentioned it earlier i think you know one of the things that i admire so much about barbara and, and larry fassadin who's in the movie and and i certainly try to do myself is champion other people and, and if there's any way we can help lift somebody up or help give some advice or, or make an introduction or, or give some feedback to a person that helps them get a little closer to achieving their goals, then we want to be the types of people who are doing that, who are using our experience and our connections to, to, to help. As a producer, you know, that's what I was doing for, for many years was, uh, you know, trying to help people sort of execute their visions in the most successful way possible. And I feel very fortunate to have worked with so many incredible filmmakers that I was also learning from. Now, you know, it's nice to carve out more time to just sort of focus on the types of stories and the types of movies that I want to make. And I'm still, uh, you know, helping and, and, and uh, you know, working on other people's projects. But the way I phrase it now is, 
you drive and I'll sit in the passenger seat and read the map and tell you if we're lost or not. <laughs> You've got to be the one driving. And it, so far it's worked out great. And so now, how did you, how were you introduced to this project? Was this an original creation or did the script come to you in some form? It, uh, I, well, it came to me. I didn't really find it but it won a screenplay contest at Denise Gossett's Shriek Fest, which mm-hmm. is a festival in L.A., and Mark Steensland was the original writer, and it won a contest. It won Best Screenplay. And I know, I know Mark from his short film Peepers, yeah. um, which is great. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's really cool. So they teamed up and thought to contact me because they thought it would be a good vehicle for me as an actor. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, this was right around the time I was working with Jackson Stewart on Beyond the Gates. And so I thought, well, maybe I could produce something for myself. And Travis and I laugh, you know, because I say it's my Rocky. And he says, you know, he loves Rocky's your favorite movie. And I said, this is my Rocky. And um, so I just started shopping it around to different people and realized that we needed to maybe develop it a little bit more. So worked on that for a couple of years. And then I met Bob Portal at uh, Alliance Media Partners and he loved the material and loved the story and loved having me involved. And so we worked on the material a little bit more, developed it. And then that was right around the time the Travis's movie came out and we're all friends with Travis and we love Travis. And we thought, well, maybe we should talk to Travis it, it just happened at the right time. And so I brought the script to Travis. He read it. And, you know, I, Travis is tired of hearing the story, but I always tell it. I say, he, we had a lunch. And he said, I want to make this movie with you guys. I want to make this film, Barbara. I want this to be my next movie. And I just started tearing up. And I, and I just knew we were going to make it. I just... Because it had been five years of development and talking to different companies and it maybe not coming together. And you know how you feel when you're developing something. You're like, ah, this screw it. This is not going to happen. I got to move on. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. So the, there was many moments like that. And then when, you know, we felt like the script was in a really good shape and then we brought it to Travis and, and he said he wanted to do it. I really, something went off in my body, in my spirit, in my soul. And I went, oh, this this is going to happen now. We're going to do this. Because we always talk about the casting of actors, which is so fun. I love in this case, the director is the one being cast. <laughs> and I think that's wonderful because, and that you're, and that you're as the actor, you're also the one leading this charge, which is fantastic. Uh, I guess I'd throw it to Travis then. What in the material was it spoke to you? Because obviously tonally, you know, there's, I, I, I think your first film has a lot of tonal shifts too, mm-hmm. but there's obviously a, you know, a, a pretty big difference in terms of maybe the comedic aspects. Uh, what was it that spoke to you with this one at that moment? My experience with the project was much, much shorter than Barbara's. <laughs> where I wasn't even done with the script. And I was like, I absolutely have to make this movie because it was so clear the parallels between what the character Anne Fetter, who is the main character in the movie, what she's going through and what Barbara was doing in her own life, which is recognizing that she wants to take more control over mm-hmm. her life and the things she's doing. And so the specifics of, you know, what's going to happen in the movie were almost irrelevant because that was the 
the, the core of the film. And the idea of helping Barbara achieve that was just like, oh my gosh, yes, I, I need to be the one to do this because I totally understand why this is so important. And so, you know, a lot of the work on the script was wanting to get, create the space to show uh, different aspects of her acting that, that uh, you know, maybe other horror movies weren't, weren't given. And so there was this idea of, well, what if we started in like a Cassavetes uh, relationship type movie? And then once she gets bit, it transforms into like the horror movies that put her on the map. And then we get a bit of both. And like, nobody said no. People just kept saying, yeah, that's great. And I was like, this is the best development process I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And as soon as you said Cassavetes, I totally see it now. That totally makes sense. Now, for casting, how did Larry Fessenden enter the conversation? Because he is just wonderful in this. Well, we, we always were flirting with Larry from the very beginning. Even a few years ago, I talked to him about it. And, you know, you can't ever say, oh, this is definitely going to happen. You're definitely going to play the part until you have the money in the bank and you're ready to go and whatever. But um, we just kept talking to him because we also felt that his career was similar to mine and that we've just been both with the genre for a really long time. I mean, mm -hmm. he's done more aspects of it than I have, but he's been uh, a horror icon for so long and he hasn't really gotten a meaty, succinct part like this in a very long time, mm -hmm. if ever, really. And um, also he's long married. We're about the same age and we know each other really well. We've worked together and we've been friends over the past few years. And I think we all wanted somebody in the role that felt really familiar. And so that, you know, there was a fear to cast somebody that we didn't know because we don't know how it's going to be on set. You don't mm -hmm. know how the dynamics are going to be. So to work with somebody that we already knew, we trusted, we felt there was a comfort level there, was going to be beneficial for the whole project going forward, I think. And you're both, what's interesting about that casting of both of you is you're both, there's a bit of a tension, which I always love in casting, of you both playing um, against the type that you've often been cast as. Yes. Mm. Because when yeah, I think of Larry, I think of a wild man. Yeah. Larry's like, right. that's brain. easy. He's always going to be like the drunken woo man. Yeah. Who's like, yeah. It's... And I think of you as uh, like somebody who walks into a room with a, a, a smile that like kind of lights everyone up and makes people feel better as a person. That's every time I've witnessed you, you have done mm -hmm. that. <laughs> so, so by opening the movie, not yeah. getting to do that in the first mm. images, I thought that was super interesting. Yeah. And, and kind of going back to the Casavetti thing, it, it wasn't that you go start Cassavetes and you go gore. It's that you come back. So, so I'm watching this movie and we were talking a little bit before we start about like how much we like it. So we'll get, we'll make sure we talk about it. So people, this is partly so people will know uh, that they need to not miss the movie, but also just, it was the coming back to something I think is hard to balance. Like reanimator and evil dead are two of the few horror comedies that aren't just funny. There's also mm -hmm. horror elements that are actually scary and unnerving. Mm -hmm. So I think it, this was falling in line with those types of movies, but what it then did to me in the second half is it remind it grounded this in this very uh, relatable to anyone because it could be any real kind of relationship mm -hmm. not just marriage uh, about um, voice and how it's very hard to have be 50 50 in anything right yeah. and how some people like so I was gonna telling you guys before I had a very personal yeah reaction and I'll tell you it's, it was interesting when I was 
uh, eight or ten. My uh, my mother, who's a you know Kiwi, lovely Kiwi woman, married a minister, and that you would think that you know, of course, on a surface level, that there's your thing, but it's it it's that you guys really nailed the. They become a minister's life is the center of a community, mm-hmm. and they are usually big personalities. That yeah, like people, especially if they're not like I'm not talking Catholic priests. I'm talking ministers. And in New Zealand, I watched my mum, who was you know single while I was little, suddenly you know be married into this thing that she didn't necessarily. I didn't don't think she really bought into it all that much, but mm-hmm. then became very subservient in that world. And I watched that for you know 15 years before one day she just you know you know, kind of left the marriage, but it was always to see somebody, it wasn't intentional. It was, it's like two, two, two people can't take up the space equally and it just kind of grows and grows and the voice gets lost. And it wasn't, I've actually right. told, uh, Becca I think that's before. exactly it. Yeah. It was so close. I mean, that part of it was just it, on an observation, even though the tone of what you guys were making is so different. The heart of mm-hmm. it was, was actually very accurate to what mm-hmm. I witnessed as an outsider growing up to that. And so I was really impressed by that, that level of it, because it's also not as simple as he's bad for that. He's unaware. No, he's, he's unaware. unaware. No, and I, yeah. no, and it wasn't our intention to make Larry's character the bad guy mm-hmm. at no. all. I mean, no, And he doesn't end up that way. No, no. See, it reminded me of Season of Witch um, and how the dynamics play out. And I assume that that's why you had done Jacob's wife because it's denying her agency because mm-hmm. season of the witch was originally called Jack's wife. And so um, mm. I, I had thought that you were winking at it, but it's the same concept where it's like the, the man kind of in this sense becomes the figurehead, the breadwinner, the community center, and then, you know, just kind of falling in line with it over years and whether or not you realize that there's a subservience happening um, and yeah, that one attacks oh, yeah. with the burn it all down. It does. <laughs> types of, and that, that's what's interesting. And that's why I could almost see um, the politics confusing reviewers who don't want nuance. Because, mm-hmm. like, because I think to myself, well, yes, it can be a feminist picture. Yeah, your, your character, it can be a feminist um, ride and still be murky because it's not just about her. It's about her. She's in a relationship still. She still yeah. loves the guy. And he's yeah. still part, you know, he can be doing his best and still not be perfect. And I thought that was so... Uh, unusual from most films, you know? I mean, I do think that these are issues, and Travis and I have talked about this, that are eternal, just like a vampire is eternal. I don't think, you know, we're always trying, women are always trying to get more equality, and we always think, oh, we've passed some plateau, and we have it now. But no, we have to keep reminding people that we're here. I don't know what it is about men and women. These are questions we're going to ask for a long time, but I, I even see it in my own marriage. I've been long married and my husband is very strong and very strong willed and a very strong personality and as strong personality as I have in many ways, he's stronger than me. And I feel like I still have to fight for my own voice sometimes in certain situations in our relationship, even after being with him for 21 years, Mm -hmm. I still yell at him and say, wait a minute, I'm over here. I just said something. You saying that to me, Hmm. you're not giving me my voice. You're, you're so reactionary. Why are you not listening to what I'm saying? I'm still saying the same things that I said when we were dating that I said, if we don't fix this, we're not getting married. (laughs) Well, we did get married. And we're still talking about the same stuff. So I do think that that's what me personally, just in trying to understand my character and loving my own husband as much as I do and feeling like 
I'll never leave him, but we're still going to have to keep going over these issues consistently and managing them because they rear their ugly heads all the time. All of that on vampires. Yeah, all of that on vampires. <laughs> you, you wouldn't know we're talking about a horror film, but we're, yeah. we're so grounding it. Let's talk about the vampires a little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about the practical effects? Because, man, the practical effects in this movie go bonkers. I legit was not expecting it to kind of get as bloody and wild as it does. Um, and Travis, I know that directing special effects is such a beast because it kills your day. Um, <laughs> as soon as blood enters the set, you're just done for the day. So can you tell us a little bit about who did your effects and what it was like working with them? Uh, so we were joined by Odyssey Effects, which is Marcus Cope. Mm-hmm. I think he probably says Koch. And uh, Jesse Seitz, his partner and Barbara and I had worked with Marcus on uh, We Are Still Here. And I did another Ted Jagan movie with a Mohawk. And we've worked with him a bunch. And the best thing about him is like, these are very modestly budgeted films. And we're able to work together in a way that he can find a solution that gets the maximum impact within our means. And, you know, I just, I like engineering gags i like at the in the writing process thinking like in like almost like a magician which is sort of like how are we going to pull this illusion off knowing that we have we can afford maybe one trip to home depot like we can't just (laughs) write whatever we want and just somebody else will figure it out like we this is going to be something we have to figure out you know the week of or 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 the day of and marcus is is somebody who's got such a wealth of knowledge not just of, of special effects but of filmmaking that it's really fun to sort of work through this stuff with him and you know because part of the humor of this movie is this couples whose whose life has gotten so shrunk so much and has become so sort of small the vampire element is supposed to introduce this wild, crazy, absurd aspect into their lives. And therefore the gore has to reflect that. And so when people, you know, everybody's always like, well, what do you see here? And I was like, well, this is a movie about a lust, you know, somebody rediscovering their lust for life. That's what our vampires represent. Right. Mm-hmm. And therefore when our vampires attack, what I see in my head is like a dog playing with a garden hose that's spraying you know, where they're just so happy and so filled with joy <laughs> and just laughing. And that's, I felt like something we hadn't seen in a vampire movie before, which tends to be so, um, you know, focusing on the sensual or, or they're basically zombies with capes, you know? Um, so it seemed like something we could do that was fun. And, you know, it's madness. Yeah. Yeah. Our climax, you know, we had monsoons hitting and stuff and, and our <laughs> had a bunch of gags and stunts and wire stuff and, working out the the math on how to shoot that after we lost a day was certainly there's certainly points where I'm like, maybe next time it's just the camera moves and the sound design tells us something. happens. <laughs> Don't like, do it. Travis. No, stay with you. Stay on course. You're doing good. <laughs> oh, damn it. Damn it. <laughs> so Leave that to people with no budget at all. A little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about the vampire itself? It was such just this beautiful classic design um, with these contemporary updates and the actress who was playing mm. it as well. 
who, who's still my scariest moment in any contemporary movie from Mulholland Drive. The oh my dumpster, dumpster scare still gets to yeah. me. Uh, so as soon as I saw Jacob's wife last night, I immediately was like, who is that? And started IMDBing her. And that's yeah. when I realized she was from Mulholland Drive. And a ton of other films where I was like, oh, that's her. Oh, that's her. Like, yeah, yeah. The Nun. The For nun. a lot of people, it's The Nun, and, yeah. yeah. And when she was in The Nun, I'll let Travis talk about the vampire um, design and everything. But um, as far as Bonnie Aarons goes, I, I really, you know, talked to the guys and I said, I really would like Bonnie to play this part because when I had seen her in The Nun, well, and we had all also been friends. We met at a, a convention, as you do. You meet, meet at conventions. And we got friendly and I really, I was really struck by her. You know, she's very outgoing and really thoughtful and friendly. And I don't know, there's just, you meet somebody and there's a vibe about them and you just like them immediately. And I really liked her. And then I was so excited to see her in The Nun. And then I saw The Nun and I didn't see much of her. And I wrote an article in Fangoria that, you know, I have a column there. And I talked about the women, the iconic women of horror, and how we don't see a lot of, uh, you know, female Freddies or Jason or whatever. It's always the guys. And why not the women? And so I thought, finally, with the nun, we're going to get to see Bonnie Aaron in her element. And I wanted more of Bonnie. And probably that was because I have a personal relationship with her now. So I'll admit that that came from me personally. But then when we realized we had this part, and Jacob's wife, I said to Travis, you know, let's let's really consider Bonnie. I really think she'd be great for it. And let's give her a little more meaty role, you know. So I was really happy that she said yes. Which was also fascinating because I wasn't really thinking about it till you know, late in the movie. But the kind of uh, the gender not being clear in the vampire character also connecting to the sensuality. Because like often, I mean, I hate to say it, but when you step back from vampire movies and think about them, they're pretty damn creeper. It's a bunch of a men putting you under a trance and then doing what they want with you. And so oh, yeah. what I found actually really effective in this, even before I realized that it was Bonnie, and it never really became the factor, was... Um, that it was its manipulation of you was for you to touch yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not for it to touch you. Yeah. And I thought that was actually really interesting. It just felt like a unique touch on this kind of interplay. And then it makes even more sense once you realize it's Bonnie and it becomes somebody who's almost, it's almost like somebody who was in your same position once mm-hmm. and has gravitated mm-hmm. right. this position. Well, her speech kind of says that at the end, yeah. you know, yeah. I was once like, you know, uh, other, whatever her lines were, Travis, you can tell us, uh, a mouse scurrying through, you know, the feet of self-important men, you know, and now she wasn't, so. Yeah. Um, I guess we open up to the lore of the, I mean, we've talked about, as Beck asked about vampire design, but also just like you guys talked about how this changed from the original script was the vampire storyline and elements and lore of these particular vampires set, or did you guys get playful with it? Like, obviously, daylight isn't a problem in this world, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting. Um, and you don't harp on it because you just move well, past it. It bothers her a little bit. She yeah. wear sunglasses, but it's not, it's not, doesn't make her shrivel and die. Like, yeah. you know, and I wondered UV if that light did. Yeah. yeah. The UV light and, you know, she wears the glasses and she goes up to the hallway at one point uh, when Maddie's on the bed and she's like, Oh, the light's coming in and the light and the curtains was bothering her at one point, you know, after yeah. she came off from the dentist, but we just hinted at that. We didn't make it a focal point. Yes. I think my, like my answers tend to have, they're really, really long because the thought process involves different tracks. And one of the thought process on this is sort of like, 
the the alt vampire movies that I loved so much growing up. Uh, you know, Abel Ferrara's Addiction or, or Near Dark or Larry's Habit. Um, these movies that are like, we're going to contemporize this story in a way that shows it's not your grandparents' vampire movie. And I, and I love that. And we, we have certain aspects of that in Jacob's work. But on the other hand, I also want to honor the long history of vampire movies and find a way to thread in all of the different <laughs> ones that, that have gotten us to this point. So that's part of the thought process. And then the other thought process is also doing something new that maybe contributes to the subgenre. So we're, we're, you know, moving it forward. So, you know, at the script stage, I think, like you said, Albert, like often the vampire represents a male suitor and it becomes an either or choice. And, and at the script stage, it was, so obvious that for this movie to be about Anne choosing herself to just remove the male aspect of that character opened that story up. And that was so exciting because then it's a movie about a woman who's being told by an outsider, like, well, you know, you don't need to you know, stay small. You can live large. And, I remember our first script read through Bonnie was like, okay, so how do you see me playing this character? Like, am I like 400 years old? I'm from like Eastern Europe should I have an accent. I was like, Oh, Bonnie. And I, you know, this was the first time in person we were meeting. I was like, I actually see you playing this character, like a rich divorcee who lives down in Palm beach <laughs> and is like taking Anne out for drinks at lunch and like trying <laughs> to get her drunk so you can go dancing. And Bonnie was just sort of like, just like, wait, what? And I was like, <laughs> it's more about the spirit of this this character than the than the specifics of, you know, the iconography. And 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 because that spirit was so progressive, and because we were changing her gender, that allowed us to do a classic design. So mm-hmm. we could we could have both, or at least I felt. Other people may watch the movie and be like, what the hell is this asshole talking about? But this, that's the thought process that's going yeah. on. And to have a classic Nosferatu-inspired look, but have it played by this sort of you know spicy, uh, liberated female mm-hmm. spirit seemed really fun. And you kept rats, which I liked. I, it's yeah. like something that... That's definitely Nosferatu throwback that I mm-hmm. I just feel like I haven't seen that in like 30 mm-hmm. years of horror. Yeah, we talked about that a lot. We, we had Zoom calls and phone calls and emails and, you know, Travis was watching all the old vampire movies. I was watching them and he was coming up with ideas like, what do we, what should we put in that would, that we haven't seen in a while? And I really want to put in rats. So we said, okay, put in some rats. Well, Did you have actual rats on set? I'm so glad you asked because I happened to listen to last week's episode where you talked about uh, somebody who, who raises rats. In, uh, Zoe Lund, who is uh, Abel Ferreira's kind of yeah. icon yeah, yeah. before she passed away. And I had a rat in Creatures that we worked with on mm-hmm. set, um, a very small one named Fatty Magoo. Actually, we used Morgan's torso as a stunt torso huh. that Fatty Magoo chews through. Um, in actuality, he was eating chicken nuggets, but yeah. yeah. I love rats. I think they're fascinating. They, they are. And we, we, it was, you know, I did the cursory uh, reaching out to the company that did the rats and Willard and some other, you know, big, big horror movies and was like, Oh, that's like a week of shooting on our budget. So that's not going to work. 
And I had seen this movie, and I've, I've said this story on another podcast, so forgive me for repeating it, but I'd seen a movie called Rat Scratch Fever that was about giant rats terrorizing a city. And I was like, well, if that guy can have giant rats terrorizing the city, I got to reach out to him. So I reached out to this filmmaker, and he's like, oh, yeah, I just bought the rats at a pet store, <laughs> and I just filmed them in a cage and built my sets in that cage. And I was like, Oh, okay. So then I reached out to a bunch of exterminators in Mississippi and finally found someone who knew somebody who raised rats. So Lexi Payne and her family would show up at like 2 a.m. for the scene with rats with just crates of rats. And we would just, it was amazing. Like that's, that's the joy that, you know, when you're making low budget films, when you find a solution to do something well beyond your means and it almost works or it works. <laughs> like, you're like, oh man, we're doing it. We're in the soup. We're doing it. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is so cool. And even the scene where Barbara is at the window and we see the rats scurrying away. Yeah. It was just nice little touches like that, that we just have not had that kind of rat persona associated with them for so long. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, the, the other element about um, also that your vampire character by changing it, had it been a, a male figure, I don't know if I would have ever been able to, and this, obviously there's some spoilers. We'd encourage you to go watch the yeah. movie first before it can be, but like that the master could take out Larry's character any second they want. Yeah. The point of the movie that makes it, it's so smart is that it doesn't want to make that choice. It wants mm-hmm. to, it wants to challenge you to make your choices mm-hmm. about your marriage. And I, and to me, that's what maybe puts this movie in a, just a slightly different lane than a lot of, mm-hmm. of what it could have been in my mind and why it was such a pleasant surprise for me because it, it, it kept thinking and feeling as it went in that way. Um, and I thought that, that also as just a narrative device, you know, solved that problem that a lot of horror films can have at a certain point. And, and I mean, you had touched on it earlier, like there's a binary aspect to a lot of horror movies, good, bad, whatever and that again spoiler territory but the end of the movie her husband makes a choice it's like our movie ends with maybe they've learned a little but they haven't solved all of their problems no. mm-hmm. and, and no. in that scene the master is like basically does an obi-wan who's <laughs> sort of like yeah yeah you can do it bud but you know like i'm not gonna i'm gonna get out of this okay and you're mm-hmm. still stuck with the consequences of your actions yeah, um, because I think it just, the questions continue on, you know, yeah. and, and the ways that we deal with these situations continue on. And, and do they ever get solved ever? Mm-hmm. Do they? If we keep trying. If we if keep, we keep trying, trying, yes. Thank you, Travis. We have to keep trying. Well, you can't new, walk new away. Yeah, yeah, you just get new problems, right? You just get, yeah. It's life. It's, you know. Um, it's like you said, it's like whether it's a, a minister or whatever, sometimes in a relationship, and certainly as a filmmaker, I am guilty of this. You can start taking up all of the air in a relationship, all the air in the room. And recalibrating that. Yeah. And, and learning like, hey, this other person needs oxygen too. Mm-hmm. Like metaphorically and, and literally like, that's the point of the movie. And that's what we're trying to, trying to you know, leave the audience with is, is this experience of like, oh, we just watched a couple that had a conversation and now there's a chance for things to change. But mm-hmm. not everything's resolved, but there's a chance for things to change. Right. They, 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 uh, the movie opens where they're quote marks, okay, but actually dead. 
<laughs> and by the end of actually dying, she's you know transformed, which it's which is really fun. I mean, honestly, I don't want to underplay that to people listening because it surprised me. And I've you know we've seen a lot of movies, obviously, doing these shows, and it kept surprising me mm. with that yeah. uh, quality. And the other thing that I wanted to bring up here was the other actors because you know we talk about support cast always, and you have these two vets that we love, but then you also Robert, have another yeah another Robert 80s vet Ressler coming in and for one, a couple scenes. Oh, he was so good. He was so good. And, you know, he still acts and he also uh, teaches acting to young people. And I believe that he has a permanent position at one of the studios and works with a lot of the young talent there. And he came on set so easy and free flowing and just was like a Svengali with me, you know, and drawing me in. And I was like, oh. Oh my gosh, this is Robert Russell. He's so cute and so awesome and just, you know, he totally had me. And he did, but he was just he was just so natural and easy and I and I do think that that comes from his work with kids too. Mm. There's something there was just something uh something really there's something special about him. I thought he was wonderful and I I loved working with him. And and, and uh-huh. Travis found him. You know, we didn't know who it was going to be, and Travis went to a screening, right? What happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a, a thrashing super fan. Like, it's probably my Bible. But uh, Oh, thrashing, yeah. I, I just chuckled the entire time that we had Robert Russler from BAMP. And yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. As yeah. The two, yeah. The two suitors for Anne, and I was like, again, it's like stupid little layers to the sort of the history of this subgenre that you're just looking for ways to just, you know, weave it into the tapestry of what you're making beyond just the story. Now, obviously um, we know Mark Kelly just as a friend and he's phenomenal. My first friend in LA, by the way, first person, first person I met in LA 10 years ago, we were both about, we were both two months from having our first babies. You guys met and in, I remember we, that. And we met in, I, this, I'm only telling this because it still makes me laugh. I looked over at this dude. I hadn't seen him in Mad Men yet. And <laughs> I, after it ended, I remember saying, I'm pretty sure that guy's an accountant. He was really boring. And when he came up to talk to me, he was like kind of flat and dull, but he was really trying hard. He really wanted to meet me. This I don't know what that was like about. Your birthing class, right? This is our birthing class where I dropped the baby a couple of times. But then the next time he comes up to me and he, he, he had, it was so clear that he had singled me out. There's like 30 people here. He had just decided on me like to talk to. So we start talking. Then it turns out he's an actor. I'm like, what? You're, you're an actor. I came in to make films. We start bonding. Um, and uh, it's one of those things where I think it was like maybe even a month later, after we were actually friends, he told me, I got to be honest with you, man. The only reason I went up to you is because uh, uh, Jay Duplass, or it was Jay or Mark, I can't remember. He had just been in their film because one of them told me when they found out I was having a baby, they said the best advice we can give you is make one good friend from your birthing class because they're the only person who will ever know what the fuck you're going through. <laughs> and so he went out of his way to make a friend. One wow. friend. And then, you know, we, awesome. I, and I still love, you know, I love the guy and I'm always so happy to see him pop up. And I think yeah. I helped him get in Rebecca's and then like was always happy when he showed up in Busters. And so... Oh. It's, Our daughters are in the same elementary school class now, so. Oh, that's that's so nice. But those kind of, you know, but that does tell you something about LA as a random town. And I'm, something I'm always very proud about is how first impressions, you were saying you get vibes from people you do, mm. but also first impressions can always be so wrong. 
especially in a town like this where people are almost forced into bullshit roles at times mm-hmm. um, and just the occurrences. I, I've more than anything tried to dial that back in my life to be like, hey, this first impression, I'm going to wait till the next time we get a chance to maybe you know, see what the situation changes. And so I'm always pleasantly surprised when somebody's, you know, because he's one of the most lovable guys. But I also think he was really well cast because in this, he was a bit against type two where he, it gave you a viewpoint outside of the marriage to see how judgmental he was. Yeah. That character is very judgmental on mm-hmm. your role, on women's roles. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to see somebody to bounce Larry off. So I thought that that was pretty fascinating too. Did you do any casting locally? Cause you, uh, there were so many just good smaller roles. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's, there's, again, two layers to this answer. And one was in order to sort of bring uh, this movie to life a little bit and give it some, give it some uh, spark, the, I wanted to take a more naturalistic approach to cameras. Again, that Cassavetes thing of like creating enough space there for the actors to not just do the scene, but then play with the scene a little bit. Yeah. And so that core group, it was important to cast actors that were comfortable with being a little looser. And so, you know, Mark uh, working with uh, Duplass brothers and, and the movies we had done and Sarah Lynn, who plays his, his wife and Larry, obviously, you know, surrounding Barbara with those actors that she could really dance with in an interesting way was like one of the main, main objectives. Yeah. And, and then with the other uh, supporting characters, we did. I mean, when you go into a town, you're not just looking for the best actors, but you're trying to, again, it's an opportunity for actors who are maybe at the beginning of their career to work on a movie that's going to raise their profile. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times with these, it's actors, this is their first feature film. And so you're looking, you're not, it's not the same thing as looking at somebody with a bunch of credits and choosing who's the best or who's got the most sales value. Often it's really just watching tape after tape after tape and finding uh, that diamond in the rough. And, and Barbara and I and, and Bob Porto, the other producer, you know, we would watch tapes from people who didn't even know that they should look in the camera when they were doing the audition. Yeah. I mean, we're talking green and, and yeah. to find those personalities and to find that talent in, in that, um, not wilderness, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> Basically, you know, when you're in a place that you don't have those relationships where maybe you met somebody at a birthing class, like where you're really starting from scratch is, is if you, I'm, I'm very proud of it. And I'm really proud of, of uh, uh, the sort of um, critical attention these supporting actors have gotten for the work. I think Naisha Bell is incredible and comes that, on. That's the one I was going to ask you about because yeah. I thought mm-hmm. her scene where she had the blood running from her eyes and her mouth, I thought she was incredible in that. Like that felt like yeah. a real pro. Like she didn't, she transformed in that mm-hmm. moment. Yes, um, she's even from the audition tape was just like, we're watching, we're watching and, and just her tape was just like, Oh, like Jimmy Page just like stepped <laughs> on stage and just started like, wailing on the guitar and like, okay, here we go yeah no she yeah she was great like if if there was a spinoff i'd happily just watch her in another movie where oh, she's yeah. still vamping you know yeah. yeah she was great it's actually hard but yeah so i mean and where just remind people where where, where was the space because i did read something about my dog skip's house i don't know what the hell i saw that in. I... <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> do you wanna, do you yeah it, uh, it we shot it in canton mississippi okay. and it's a little small town outside of jackson and it feels like a town that maybe had its glory 50 years ago, and now it's a little weathered. And 
maybe a little sad, but mm. was beautiful once. Had this dreams. Is me. This is you and me both. I mean, and it's kind of like Anne's character, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they shot a couple movies in and the house that Anne and Jacob live in uh, was the, was the main house in my dog skip. Wow. Then, oh my was gosh. A, yeah. I've seen that movie so much. I definitely did not. Yeah. Of course, I'm sure it's changed since then, but that's one of those movies that I could um, see the geography of the house just from seeing the movies. So. Mm-hmm. And had any of you shot there before in this town? Or is no. This oh, okay. No, we just, we found a service pr- production company down there and they do a lot of commercials and other work. And they, and actually they had, uh, the DP had worked on um, a couple of movies with a friend of ours and we kind of just took a chance and went down there and it worked out really well. And we'd like to make some more movies there mm. with, with that, with those people and that, ta- and be in that town again. It, it was really nice. And I just, you know, like that core idea of smashing up this vampire element with this idyllic small town the idea of Anne ripping somebody's head off in the kitchen of the My Dog Skip house. I know, <laughs> it's, right? It's so yeah. Like, I mean, it's like subversive cinema. I know. Layers that people maybe, like, if you're there, you're just chuckling. Yeah. And we, we filmed in um, a grocery store, mm-hmm. if you remember, and it was the local Piggly Wiggly that I don't think has changed in 50 years. You go in there and, like, you know, the Lipton onion soup mix is on the, on the shelf and then Nabisco crackers. And, you know, there was nothing that looked like whole foods or any organic, whatever. It, it was like a a grocery store from my childhood. Right. As it should be. Yeah. It was cool. It was really cool. We didn't have to dress it up or anything. It was just there. Travis, I, I was so impressed with the cinematography in this. I'd love to hear you talk about kind of the look you were going for. Like the house seems so dusty. Um, it like it constant streams of light. Like it was hard fall off and dusty the whole time. Yeah. Again, the, the core idea was to inject this Gothic element into small town America. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I sort of took from April Ferrara's The Addiction was they used really strong single light sources and set their scenes in a place where that light would go through something that would create gothic shadows. Mm-hmm. So the scene, uh, you know, under the fire escape or the scene in Christopher Walken's uh, flat, they look gothic, but you recognize it as that's New York City. But that 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 combination of the two elements is really interesting and so we tried to the best of our ability to to carry that idea over into this you know small town american setting and and really just push a ton of lights through the windows so that you have that hammer film you know classic sort of shafts of light uh uh sort of aesthetic and yet the set itself is your grandparents' house, you know? So just trying again to just mash those two, two very different elements together. Which Barbara can lift with one arm and walk around <laughs> the living room with. That was so fun. I couldn't believe, oh, they, they showed up with this furniture that was so light. And I think it was surprising to everybody because it looked heavy and I lifted it and it was as light as a feather. Yeah, we were it was thinking, a really we were, cool scene. 
I, of course, in my head, I was like, okay, so we'll have pulleys and we'll have yeah. rope and we'll have grips moving the furniture around this space. And are we going to be able to put hooks in the ceiling to support this? And da da da. The production designer was like, or here's another option. And was like, oh, that's. that's Let's get it. some blow on furniture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I just, I did want to ask you guys one thing for people who are maybe making those first independent films the difference of shooting in LA versus going on location with a group of people when you don't have a big budget and you're trying to obviously camaraderie, but what are the, you know, the challenges versus the advantages for people? Cause mm-hmm. that's something I think about a lot because I, I feel like you're going to get to spend all this like immersive time with somebody versus the, I'm, you know, back into your own bed at the end of the night, drive, you know, drives home, all of that. You've obviously done, you both of you over your years have done all, all the, all of these. Are there, you know, clear advantages to you? Not just this movie, but in general. Yeah, I mean, my my perspective on this is is changing uh, significantly because I used to have a sort of a producer worldview that the most important thing is finding a, uh, making the numbers make sense so the movie can happen, and everything else you can figure out. And yes, that is true. And tons of movies get made that way and tons of movies will continue to get made that way, especially if it's your first and second movie. And yet now that I've, you know, been uh, a director or a writer more and seeing sort of where you're, you're, you're losing on the edges, how your movie sort of has to shave corners and stuff to fit in that model. I've been personally really inspired by, there's a bunch of filmmakers working in a completely different model, which is I'm going to make this movie in my hometown with a small group of people that I know in locations that I have. It's not sounding groundbreaking. A lot of filmmakers make their first film in their hometown, but I look at Anthony Scott Burns come true or uh, Jill Gervaisian's uh, the stylist. Mm-hmm. These, these people who are achieving uh, a quality of film that's so much beyond their budget. And, and it's only possible because of how familiar they are with that town and with the people in that town and have really focused nurturing those relationships, making shorts together, music videos together. Because that's one of the drawbacks of, of going into a new place is you're starting your relationship from scratch. Yeah. And by the end of the show, it's certainly developed a lot. And like Barbara says, you want to go back to towns and you you sort of know people and it gets easier and easier. But I've personally been really inspired by a bunch of recent films. Uh, Seder was another one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Bagos and Josh Theer's Bliss, where they just went com- in a completely different model. And I think the end results are really fascinating and, and high quality because they're not having to sort of shave corners. Mm. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. No, that's a, that's a cool model. It's difficult if you are not originally from a tax incentive state. Um, yeah, that's yeah. true too. There's that. Yeah. Always the tax incentives. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I also just like, also just on the crew level, I'm always curious if, if, is there an advantage to having them all or do, or are people getting over each other even faster that way? You know, I know this is an incredibly uh, practical question, but <laughs> I'm just curious if you've noticed a big shift in those or because I know a lot of people probably do obviously want to get back to their families. I know Barbara, like literally last night you were flying back from somewhere, right? So obviously it's a big mm-hmm. part of your life is going to location. Mm-hmm. Um, do you notice much of a difference in uh, how, the, how the films go? 
in that regard? I think every film is its own beast. I don't know. I, I personally like going places. I like traveling, but it, it, it does still feel like you're reinventing the wheel every time you go to a location. Hmm. And, you know, we did feel a little bit like that with Jacob's wife. Like, is it going to be okay with these people? We don't know them. And we, we, we took a risk and, and it worked out great, hmm. but we didn't know. Um, and it doesn't always work out great. It doesn't. Um, I just got back from, I just got back from doing a couple of days on a movie in Utah and, uh, we made the movie in the lead actress's, uh, vacation home, her, her, uh, 10,000 square foot vacation home from her family. Her family oh. happens to have a really nice vacation home and, uh, and she made it with her friends and, I was sort of, you know, I don't have anything to do with the movie. I was just brought in at the last minute. Um, but I, you could feel that camaraderie, like what Travis is talking about. Everybody who was working on that movie knew each other and they'd worked together before and they were all supportive of one another and the house was there and it was just, it, 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 it felt like a family mm-hmm. making a movie. And I think you do try to recreate that every time you make a film. You, we, we're, we're, we're interdependent people, you know, mm-hmm. people that work in the film business. We're not so independent. We, we have to be collaborative. And so I think most of us do look for that family feeling when we're making a film it doesn't always work. And maybe sometimes it does work better if you are in your hometown or you're making it with your friends. And I, I mean, I think that is the way it's going now because anybody can make a movie and a lot more people are having the opportunity to make films now. So that's really nice. But when you're working at a different level, like when I know when I get bigger jobs or studio jobs or whatever, it definitely feels different. I don't feel like I'm with a family. I feel like I, you know, the, the, the gears are, you know, really working well and they know what they're doing and you're plugged into a certain aspect of filmmaking and you can just do that because everybody else is really dialed in and doing the thing that they're doing and they, and they can do it well. But for this low budget independent filmmaking, the, the, the way that you can create that familial aspect of it, I think you're going to come out with a better product eventually. I just want to jump back in and and I'm a filmmaker now, so I shouldn't be talking like in giving producer advice, but Hmm. I think if you can identify what your movie needs, what are the important, what is the most important aspect of your movie and identify that it'll help guide every other decision. Mm. Because there is, you know, if you go to another place, if you're flying people in, then you're spending money on lodging Mm -hmm. and airlines, all this stuff that does your movie need that? Or does your movie need some extra time? Or you know, where should that money go? What if you can identify what the most important aspects of your movie are? It'll help mm-hmm. make it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we needed a small town. We needed a really cool small town, mm-hmm. and we got that. Um, but we did have to put people up in hotels and fly people out and bring a lot of the crew in because there's not a lot of crew in Mississippi, so they came from surrounding areas. And, you, and there's a lack of vegetables often. In <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I think it's true. I, I, I love getting that little bit of advice at the end for, for people listening, because I do think both of you, uh, it's, it's clear to me just having watched both of you over the years, what your, 
your interests with people are and not just even people you're not working with. I've always seen advice being given and help being offered. And I think that's super valuable. I mean, I know, I know we hear from people all the time saying things we've done have touched people like that. And you know, it never gets old to hear it mm-hmm. because you can lose sight of it. But I think yeah. that I think you guys coming together here is it's, you know, it's making something that is, it's a special, it's a really fun movie. If we haven't gone enough about how bonkers <laughs> it also is and playful and crazy, it is almost fun and funny yeah. and heartfelt. Yeah. 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 But, so, so where can, can uh, <laughs> yeah, where can everybody see it? It's playing at Panic Fest. Here. Where can they see it after this festival? Well, we have a big list that we're going to put out on social media really soon. We, we, time. we got a little, this is happening so close to the release, yeah. um, but it's going to play in a lot of theaters, but oh, we don't great. have the theaters. They're pretty much booked. And, well, and if I had to guess, yeah. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a gambling man. Mm-hmm. You lived in Amarillo, Texas, Maple Forest, <laughs> Texas, Bismarck, North Dakota, Cincinnati, Ohio, Jefferson City, Montana, Columbia, uh, Montana, or is that Missouri? Uh, Dearborn, uh, Michigan, Port Huron, Michigan, El Paso, Texas, Bay City, Michigan. I don't know my state's abbreviations. So oh, I'm oh, shame, shame. Come on. I went to public school in Vermont. They didn't okay. funding. Anyways, there's a list of 30 cities. So it's doing a theatrical... It is. We're gonna. We'll be putting that out on our social medias really soon. But um, it and it's going to play in three or four places in LA. I think. That's wow. The, the Lemonade North Hollywood, uh, the um, Vineland Drive-In, and the Arena Cine Lounge Drive-In. All the sixteenth, seventeenth, cool. and eighteenth. I encourage everybody to go see it the sixteenth or seventeenth because on the eighteenth. I hope everybody's watching the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Thank you yeah, for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, Good I mean, plug. I, I may be part of that. You may be part. We'll see. We'll see. We may. We may be part of that. We may. Um, Who knows? We'll see. But, but you'll be able to rent it on Amazon and iTunes and I assume Vudu and Google Play and all, all of those, right? Well, it's an interesting timing. I mean, it's just cool timing that you guys got the fest- your festival run gets a little mixed up with the pandemic. But the fact that now that it's coming out, we're going to have options. And I think that's super mm-hmm. lucky. Yeah, I am excited to see theaters reopening and that you guys get that experience, um, you know, even if it's right at the start of it. So have you guys been to the theater yet since? I haven't yet. No. I haven't either. I just noticed yeah. that my AMC Stubbs account reopened. Um, or more of it popped up and I got notifications. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to maybe get back. We'll see. We'll see how I'm feeling. But yeah. Well, thank you guys so thank much. Thank you for, for talking us to us. Here. This yeah. is awesome. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, everyone, please check out Jacob's Wife playing here at the festival. Um, but if you're listening to this episode as part of our normal episode run, you can definitely find it in a theater nearby soon. And I think it's this weekend. I think it's the weekend it will be coming oh, out to our podcast. Okay, so excellent. Very good, and yeah. Also VOD as well. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you so again. much. of the dark podcast is a fangoria production producers and co-hosts are rebecca mckendry and elric kane executive producers are tara ainsley and abby Gould. associate producer is jessica soth of amir sonic branding by michael rodriguez and of course our amazing sound engineer ernie hurtado 